1: From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host,
2: Rob Snowett.
3: This is the 266th episode of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. I'm sure you've got plenty of time on your hands now that we are all quarantined. So whether you are out fishing by yourself, walking in the middle of the street, or just trying to avoid your family, I've got two and a half hours of dry fly talk to you in this episode. These podcasts are recorded the week that they are released, so the people that I'm interviewing are going through the same thing you are at the moment. This is an in-depth discussion about dry flies with Art black. Art, if you may remember, is the manager of Orvis Arlington and now the current president of the Tidal Potomac Fly Rodders. In this episode, we're going to discuss everything from selectivity of trout to the presentation of dry flies to trout. We're going to hear all of Art's thoughts and theories about floatants. He's going to tell us some great stories of hanging out with Joe Humphreys. And there's all sorts of extra stuff going on in this one. This podcast was recorded after happy hour. The wife and I put down a dozen happy oysters from Sapidus Farms. If you need to order some oysters and help keep Mike in business because all the restaurants he supplies are currently closed, go to happyoysters.com. And there are a couple of drinks included during the recording of this extra long podcast. It's a long one, but hey, what else are you going to do right now? Stay tuned to this episode and we got a really fascinating one about salmon again but super interesting coming up next week thank you so much for listening and hey if you want to give us some stars and some ratings please go ahead on itunes throw in a rating show us that you love us here at the fly fishing consultant podcast all right so we're gonna talk dry flies today right yeah let's let's get a refresher on on who you are what you do and do you have a celebrity doppelganger?
1: <laughs> um. So yeah, I don't know about the celebrity doppelganger. I have to think on that. The uh, yeah, I have one in mind. Um, <laughs> it'll be funny, but uh, yeah. So my name is Art Noglak. I am the store manager at the for the Orvis Company in in Arlington, Virginia. I'm also the president of title potomac fly rodders uh, which
3: i think you know very well indeed we're gonna do a virtual tour on the evening that this is released virtual tie I mean. Uh, yeah that's right in bourbon
1: celebrity doppelganger i you know I don't, I don't i don't think i look like anybody but i've i've been told uh when i get a few beers in me that um you know especially when we get to talking sports or fly fishing or you know something i'm passionate about that i have a uh uh, I sound. I begin to sound uh, a la Stephen A. Smith, who, who, unless you're a sportsman, you
3: wouldn't, you wouldn't know. It's got a big forehead. Right. That's got, right. Got a fiver.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Five I'm not African American, nor am I in my
3: 50s, but, but yeah. You I've are Italian, I believe. Correct. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's correct. All right. How long have you been living now in the DC metro area?
1: I have been here. I think since 2015, maybe 15, 16, something somewhere in that area.
3: You've adjusted. Well, you're now married.
1: Yes. Yes. My
3: wife is
1: uh, putting things in the fridge as we speak. My wife, Bunny.
3: And tell us who her sister is. (laughs) Uh, Her sister is Apple. And and, who is she with? (laughs) This is so funny. (laughs) Right. So, so that her twin sister
1: is, has been, dating trent jones for i think well over 10 years at this point so you know, trent is a long time tpfr you know founding member and uh fly fishing enthusiast so now he is my common law
3: brother-in-law that's funny <laughs> yeah all right so let's start talking about them dry flies when did you first get introduced to the dry fly mm, that's a great question you know i've
1: I, I really I started. What's interesting is I started, you know, fishing from a very very young age. You know, my father was a was a fisherman, and and I got to know it as a as a native Clevelander. So, uh, you know, anadromous steelhead, and you know the Great Lakes steelhead game, and the and the you know smallmouth bass and things were, you know, what I kind of cut my teeth on. Carp, think warm water type of thing, and um, but the neighboring uh, you know states of Pennsylvania and West Virginia offered some excellent, excellent trout fishing. And, you know, uh, growing up, I was able to, uh, take advantage of that. And so, you know, I've been, you know, fishing trout for
3: a lot of, a lot of years, you know, since I, I don't remember the age, but fairly young teens. And as a historical perspective, when were you introduced to say the traditional English method of casting a dry fly upstream? And is that something you used or abandoned as you progressed in your fly angling?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question, Rob. I, I think like most anglers, you know, as somebody who's, who's spent, you know, the last decade teaching people to fly fish and, and being, um, you know, in that community as a, as a professional, I've, I've come to determine that, you know, most people when they, when they get into trout fishing, you know, the first thing that's most important to them is how many right? You know, success is typically measured in how many fish you, you catch. And, and, and so oftentimes, you know, people start with right angle indicator techniques or, you know, uh, the more recent advent of, of, um, the European style nymphing or, or as, uh, as we like to call it in our shop, nymphing without borders or freedom nymphing, <laughs> you know, those, those types of techniques, uh, uh, typically produce more fish. And, and so, you know, I think people gravitate towards towards those techniques. And I definitely did um, when I first started uh, fly rotting, if you will, for, for trout. So, you know, I bet, I, I bet that I, I was fly fishing for, you know, for trout for well over a year before I ever even caught a, a, a fish on a dry fly. And then even when I did, it would only be like I would only ever even think to tie a, tie a dry fly on if if there was like some sort of blanket hatch going on and you know fish all around me were rising or 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 if there was one fish that was you know continuously rising over and over and over and over again with reckless abandon. It would take a lot for me to even consider tying on a dry fly because the industry and all the publications and all the reading and all the books and you know everything I knew about dry fly fishing was that it it was you know damn near impossible to get a fish to eat a dry fly unless it was consistently you know consistently rising and even at that they were far more selective when they were eating dry flies on the, on the surface so if I wanted to if I wanted to be successful you know I would go out and, and even if even if there were fish to be had on the surface I would still continue to nymph
3: because I just felt like I would always catch more I realized last year in England that the reason you want to come say hi, come say hi to Art. You can't hear. Hey, Pixie. (laughs) Hi. Get closer to the microphone. Hello. Hello. She sounds like a cherub, doesn't she? She she does. Go watch your princess movie. I think she's watching Princess Diaries too. Oh, right now. Just get out of my, okay. Uh, So I realized last year in in England that I, I couldn't see anything in these overcast conditions in these springy creeks, covered in canopies of trees, no one had polarized glasses back then, so they couldn't see a trout unless it was actually yeah. feeding on top. My theory is that's where the English tradition of only sight casting to a rising trout came from. Otherwise, you'd just be wasting your time. So you want to you want to hear a great story? Always, I'm gonna
1: give you a, I'm gonna give you a great story. So it, this was probably uh, five or five or six years ago. Now and and at the time I was um, I was actually working for well, I was still working for Orduvis but but I was uh, I was out of the Pittsburgh location at that time and Tom Rosenbauer helped you know he uh, he set up a um, Joe Humphreys to come and do a, a, or he helped me to facilitate Joe you know and I've known Joe for years and uh, to come do a, a presentation um, and Joe if you haven't ever seen Joe Humphreys do a like a live presentation he's one of the best and uh so he came out but he doesn't drive anymore so you know i drove out there to pick him up and and drop him off and and he's unfortunately subjected to my you know my driving and navigational ability and anybody who's ever been in a car with me knows that that's you're taking your life into your own hands but we get into this long story longer we get into this conversation about seeing fish right like how you know, how you can, you can see fish so well. And, and I think the, I, I can't remember if it was when I was dropping him off or I was picking him up, but we were in his backyard and we were looking into um, Spring Creek. He's got a, you know, if anyone has ever been to Joe's house, he's got like his own, you know, kind of private section of uh, Spring Creek there in Belfont in Belfonte, his backyard. And he's like, he's got no glasses on and he's, you know, he's he's showing me all these different fish and where they are. And it's amazing because he can see deep into the water with no, polarized sunglasses on and I can barely see these
3: fish with them on. He's part Osprey.
1: Right. And so, you know, it's interesting that you, that you talk about that because, you know, sometimes we take that for granted, you know, like our generation, we grew up with like these, all this technology, you know, phenomenal polarized sunglasses. We can peer through the water. These guys didn't have any of that, you know, even 30 years ago, you know, 25 years ago. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that because mm-hmm. I think, I think those guys, I mean, Joe can, you know, some of these guys can see through the water without glasses
3: just, just fine because they, you know, they know what to look for later on in my random question segment. Number 18 is a good Joe Humphrey story. So you have to give me another one later. I have a couple. Yeah. All right. Also, uh, by the way, what did you stock up on for your quarantine?
1: What did I stock up on?
3: Yes. What have you been hoarding yourself? That's a great.
1: That's a great question. You know what it is, and it's really not so much myself; it's my wife. So it's Haagen cookies and cream, which is actually kind of hard to find. And if you do your research, the Washington Post just recently had an article of the top cookies and cream ice creams in the in the country. It was ranked. Uh, it was
3: ranked number two. How about that? Right now. Yeah. So that's what, what we How much you know, pork belly did you stock up on?
1: Well, that's we're always well stocked on on pork belly, you know. My wife's Filipino and so that is a that is a staple um in in many dishes, so so we eat a lot of a lot of pork belly anyway. Very nice. Yeah, we we're, we're trying not to hoard anything, you know, cuz there, there's no like food shortage. You know, it's not I mean, you know, we there's there's bit, you know, there's definitely been some things that have been difficult to get, but yeah, I mean, I mean, for the most part, food doesn't seem to be the, the major issue. It's like the cleaning supplies and the
3: toilet paper. And Ma- the paper. I used to be mocked for my bidet.
1: <laughs> Who's
3: mocking me now? Do you have
1: a bidet? Yeah, dude. Oh.
3: Wow. After traveling to Europe, I'm like, mm. I'm not going to. We can skip that part. I'm not going to promise that I'm I'm not going to mock you for that. Yeah. <laughs> Do the H Mart y'all go to down the street the secret one? Be- the best h-mart in the world yeah. we still go there even though we don't live there anymore they have hello kitty toilet paper with hello kitty on it i believe it yeah that right. is the cleanest most well organized
1: maybe not even just h-mart but just grocery store that i've ever been
3: the h-mart Mart in off- annadale just smells like low tide and then you walk <laughs> into this one you're like it's sparkling in here
1: what well, you should tell the listeners you know h-mart where's that that's the burke Bird the one. burke oh it's amazing. Like we get lobsters there all the time for like seven ninety nine a pound. And they're amazing. I mean their seafood section's phenomenal. It doesn't you even can't, smell you can't like
3: throw it. those lobsters in an instapot anymore. Yeah, that's right. We got we got rid of that. Dude, we made when chicken we, marbella in it, the Ina Garten recipe. Oh my god. So Yeah, good. when we when we moved when uh, we moved to Clarendon for your for your listeners, when
1: we moved to Clarendon, we had a smaller place and so we gave Rob all of our all sorts of different uh, small appliances that
3: we can't fit. <laughs> Instapot. And what else did I give you? Uh, deep-, deep fryer. But we just ordered. We're on our third air fryer. I really like the Emerald brand, but they keep crapping out. Mm. A frozen chimichanga from the grocery store. 17 minutes at 400 will come out as if it was deep fried at Chewy's down the street.
1: So we're not we're not really into them in the U.S. so much, but my wife, you know, has introduced me to. Uh, we cook a lot of a lot of her Filipino stuff and 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 just yeah you know, different things, and it. it's called a turbo broiler, which is similar to an air fryer, but but a little bit different. You can get them like at Walmart for, you know, uh, dot com for like twenty five bucks, and it's 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 basically like a convection oven with a glass top right? And there's like a, there's a heating element built in, but it's amazing, man. We'll throw like, you know, chicken wings in there or or chicken leg quarters, pork belly. And it's just so succulent and crispy, whatever you put in there and it cooks in no time at all. And there's just no mess to clean up, which is, which is so yeah, I love
3: it. dry flies. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, (laughs) when you see a fish feeding on top, what should your plan of action be? You know, you're you're sitting there, you're either waiting it out, you're walking a stream or all of a sudden something like I was in Colorado once in Frisco and I just started seeing rise. It was nothing. And I started popping and I think it was the sound of the mayflies popping their shucks. And I probably caught seven or eight trout during a a hatch on a line wolf. I never experienced dry fly fishing like that ever in my life. And I just happened to be the right place at the right time. What would you do if you saw a hatch starting?
1: so you know number one is like you know just to answer your initial question is your your initial question was you know you're walking along and you see a trout rise and and the reality is the first thing you need to do in my opinion is wait right i I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they you know immediately start like you know just wailing on that fish with reckless abandon with whatever they have on at the particular time and and um you know, I think I think it's best to to take your time and, and get a little bit more information about what's going on in your surroundings, you know, so and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I am not a believer that trout are selective. So I don't think it's I, I don't I don't believe that that, you know, trout are very selective creatures by any any stretch of the definition. So you know, I think that not, not to say that they will eat anything and not to say that they're not more selective or less selective at particular times and, and on certain rivers and in certain situations, but by their very nature, I think that, you know, any selective creature is probably now extinct. Um, you know, I think that they're not that they'll eat anything either, but, but they're opportunistic, uh, uh you know, all that being said, I think that, you know, you have to like identify some different things, you know, like one, is there multiple fish feeding in the pool, you know, or, or in the area? Is there one that's closer to you than the fish that you saw that you could maybe catch first? Is there, you know, a lot of bugs on the surface? Is the fish rising consistently or is it inconsistent? What are, what do you have tied on at that particular time? You know, what have you had success with earlier in the day before you saw that fish? You know, there's a lot of different variables that, that go into it. And so as soon as you see a fish rise, I think the best practice is to wait, you know, and try to gather some information um, before you make that presentation and put that and put that fish down.
3: What methods would one do not to spook a fish?
1: So. You know, I think, you know, the the classic things are always like, you know, oh keep a keep a low profile and you know, and crouch and all these things that none of us really do unless people are looking. But but I would say stay behind them, you know, and and, and which is why the the you know the upstream method I think, you know, we talked about it earlier, the the, the upstream English method, I think that's probably born more, more out of necessity, right? You know, I mean, if you're behind a fish and you make an upstream presentation with a nice drag free drift and as long as you don't give that fish anything but leader and you don't smack the water right over top of them, you know, they're they're not going to be spooked too often. You know, even on even on limestone streams and and spring creeks, you know, I I think that um, especially if they're pressured, you know, here on the East Coast, like, you know, we complain all the time about how pressured waters are and yes and they are you know because we have high population densities but but at the same time like there's no doubt that that they're used to people standing over them (laughs) you know and walking by them like you know i mean there's very famous streams here on the east coast that have very famous pools on them that you know have names that are you know that you know i'll fish on a on a regular basis at least a couple times a year where you put a fish down and then, you know, 10 minutes later or less, he's eating again. You know, I mean, they're, they're not that afraid of you,
3: you know, on these, on these higher pressure streams. So with that in mind, would you say there are some myths involved with dry fly fishing and spooking fish? Some um, of
1: the greatest lies ever sold, in my opinion, revolve around dry fly fishing or fly fishing, especially, or just dry fly fishing specifically. Yes. You know, the the selectivity element is the, is the, the biggest, you know, the biggest one, the, the match, the hatch concept. And, and, you know, although, although that's a, that's a great overgeneralization of how you can be successful um, it's by no means an exact, you know, an exact science. And, you know, the fact that you need to, you know, under have a a pocket guide to eastern mayflies and a and a thorough understanding of every you know scientific name and you know genus and subspecies and you know in order to be successful on a trout stream is is a is an unbelievable myth you know when i when i teach classes about this kind of stuff i always i always ask people like you know like uh,
0: like if i'm doing a group
1: class or something i always kind of get into this like you know show of hands how many of you have caught a trout on a you know piece of corn (laughs) and you know you get all these all these hands go up or like how many of you have caught a fish on a hot dog and how many of you have caught a you know fish on a piece of soap or how many of you have you know tried to put a cheeto on a hook or you know and and, and like all these hands are going up and you know you know this better than anybody but the, the reality is is fish eat what might be food why because they have to because if they don't they'll die. You know, they can't, they can't be that, that selective, right? You know, they have to take advantage of, of, of an opportune food source, not sometimes, almost every time, you know, based on, um, uh, a lot of different things, you know, Tom Rosenbauer, who I know real well, he, he talks one of the, and and honestly, let me, let me digress here for a second. One of the best explanations about, trout selectivity that i've ever read and, and i read this many many years ago i don't i don't remember when he published this book relative to when i bought it but his his book uh prospecting for trout which is one of the one of his older books
3: that's two podcasts in a row that this book has been brought up oh really yeah that's, that's interesting. I haven't listened. But
1: it's funny, I'm I'm featured in the sequel to that book, actually, which is which is pretty cool. Um, Tom, I did some stuff with Tom on his uh, the sequel to that, which is fly fishing for trout, which is like a more advanced version of that book. But anyway, prospecting for trout, in my opinion, and I've read a lot of stuff is probably in, in my in my humble opinion, it's probably one of the better how to trout fishing books i've ever read and if i remember correctly the subtitle is like what to do when there's not a hatch to match he talks about the fertility of streams in that book and for whatever reason that's always resonated with me and you know basically the way the the difficulty of the stream is is really about not it's when there's less insect life in the stream it's easier.
3: They're more right? selective. They can't afford not to pass up an elm f- leaf floating by versus if it's a mayfly that looks just like it.
1: Correct. So, like, and you know, and, I, and if I remember, I haven't read this book in you know well over ten years, I'm sure. But, but you know, he uses like the example of like a brook trout stream, right? You know, you have these high gradient streams that are that that you know there's very little insect life in it comparatively speaking which always cracks me up when i when i like see people that put hatch sharks on for brook tiny little brook trout streams in the
3: in the shenandoah but just to put up the the Mayf- uh so the old order started tyson's back in the old days we put up <laughs> the the royal coachman hatch mr rapidans are coming off right now that's great advice
1: that's phenomenal <laughs> advice <laughs> You know but anyway uses use that example of like streams that aren't very fertile there's comparatively speaking there's not a ton of insect life hatching out of those out of those streams and and you know common sense tells you that it's just because of the gradient right they're so high up in the mountains and that stuff's you know tumbling down those rocks and just filtering everything out of there so quickly and you know which is why brook trout are so easy to catch if you will you know and and they're not selective at all you know it cracks me up when people think like well uh they're small fish so i need to feed them a small fly i don't fish anything below a size 14 and most of the time i'm fishing 12s for brook trout ever ever there's there's never a reason that i've ever needed to go under a 14. if you look at their mouth size comparative to their body it's a big gaping hole it really is i mean and it's like a whale Right. And I'm sure, and you know, I don't know this, I'm not a biologist at all, but you know, and I'm not even a very smart person, but I'm definitely in the common sense hall of fame. If, I mean, they have big mouths, I think specifically to tackle, you know, large food sources. I mean, you know, we've all seen them eat big moths and, you know, giant insects and big beetles and you know, there's – I've seen videos of those things eating mice patterns and all, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, they're, they're relatively easy to, to catch. And then, you know, on a, on the flip side, these lower gradient streams, these, you know, spring creeks or, you know, limestone-influenced streams, you know, they collect – there's a lot of sediment there. And and in a lot of grasses and, and various adolas and watercress and, and, you know, things that, you know, grow up underneath the water. And so they just attract all this various – kinds of bug life. And so those fish, you know, that would be an example of a very fertile stream and those fish, you know, can in fact be a lot more selective because they have so many different food sources to, to go after. But that being, even with that being said, you know, I'm, and not that, and I'm not, let me preface by saying, I'm not saying that I haven't come across streams that are extremely difficult. Believe me, I've been skunked, you know, more times than you could ever imagine, but I've never come to a stream that I was convinced that the fish were so unbelievably selective that I didn't have anything in my box that could possibly fool that fish.
3: So let's talk about what's in your box. If there is a hatch going on, uh huh, what would you be throwing to each specific hatch situation? Well, you know, I think the idea is getting get as what
1: I like to do is, is if it's a thick hatch i like to I like to get as close as possible and then go one size up. You know that's kind of a general rule. A lot of people say like go smaller i I, I don't like that I, I like to go one size up, so you know if 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 I know that, okay, well, hey look, there's a bunch of you know little yellow bugs coming off, they're probably sulfurs. you know it's that time of year. they look like sixteens. I'm going to my box and I'm probably going to pull out you know, and it depends on the water, right? If it's, if it's, uh, if the water's choppy, you know, and I'm fishing a a river, like, um, you know, if I'm here on the East coast, for instance, and maybe I'm on like the lower Savage and there's a, you know, there's a lot of pocket water there. Shout out to PJ. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's the guy who really freaking taught me how to fish that river. That's one of my favorite on the East coast. Uh, PJ Daly of Savage River Angler. He's really one of the best trout guides on the, on the East coast. And he does, um, and, and I've, I've fished with a lot of them and he does the, uh, the lower Savage and, and it's various, uh, the, the Savage river and it's various tributaries and brook trout fishing in the area, but he also does, um, float fishing on the North branch uh, of the Potomac river as well. And that's kind of in the West Virginia, Maryland panhandle, you know, that river's like a high gradient little tail water and, and there's a lot of pocket water and, and ripply water. And, and, you know, so I'm going to want to fish something that I'm going to be able to see really well, and it's going to float. So I might, I might do a, um, a, uh, like a parachute sulfur or, uh, during sulfur season on that river, my favorite, my favorite fly in the pocket water anyway, is, uh, Charlie mech, uh, Patriot fly. Um, which is kind of a, a wolf-esque, like two-post pattern with a um, with a little yellowy tinsel, and I'll and I'll put that in the pocket water. So so that's a you know that's a good you know idea. And that that usually be like a like a fourteen or a twelve. If if it's a if it's a sixteen sulfur, I'm going to put on a fourteen fly. Right, because I, I wanna, number one, I wanna be able to see my my fly in a in a big hatch. And I want the in a big hatch, I want to um, especially if there's a lot of bugs and the fish are feeding heavy, I want my fly to I want the the fish to be able to differentiate my fly from the from the flies on the water. And you know, anybody who tells you that like and then you know, and sure if I get a few drag-free drifts past that fish and it and it doesn't look look at it, or if I get a refusal, I might downsize the fly, but Typically, I don't have a problem with that, with that one size up rule.
3: Let's say there are fish rising and you don't have a specific fly. Is there something you would throw to replicate, say a caddis, mayfly or stonefly or grasshopper Uh or midge? Are there general patterns that somebody could use to kind of represent several things? Yeah. I mean, you know, prospecting fly, if you will. So, so there's a few, there's a few
1: answers to that, to that question. One is, you know, if you're asking me, you know, if you asked a question, you know, if you, if you have a, like a soulfish rising and you can't for the life of you see anything on the water or figure out what he's rising to, um, absolutely. So uh, if I can't determine what that fish is, is rising to. I'm almost every time going to throw on a rusty spinner or an ant. You know, these are things that, you know, mayfly spinners, unless it's the dead of winter, uh, mayfly spinners and ants are two things that you're always going to be able to find um, or or more often than not be able to find on any, uh, any river across the U.S., and they're very generic and they're typically, you know, all year, all year long. So, you know, like a size 16 rusty spinner is just a phenomenal pattern. What I like to fish the West branch of the Delaware a lot and I'll never get up there as much as I'd like, but, but that's one of my favorite dry fly rivers. And, and I would, I've I, I fished a lot of places in this country and I would definitely, that'll definitely be on my top 10 list of, of places for dry fly fishing. And, and, you know, if it's 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 very rare that you can't get a fish to eat a rusty spinner on that on that river. Is it the um,
3: color and, you think they just see differently?
1: No, I think it's just I think it's just a
3: common or your confidence in it.
1: Well, I I think confidence in a fly is is extremely important. You know, I I think a comp, the confidence in in the fly that you have is probably more important than you know what the fish are eating. <laughs> in all honesty, because I think you'll. You'll be able to get a fish to eat a wide variety of things that look that look like they might be be food and easily obtainable. But I think that, you know, a a, a mayfly spinner, especially in the spring or or summer months, is just something that they've seen a ton of, right? You know, especially if there was a hatch the evening before. You know, the next morning there's going to be mayfly spinners floating down the river for miles and miles and miles. So that's just a great blanket guess. You know, the disadvantage of a fly like that is it's difficult to see um, on the water, especially if, if if there's a little bit of gradient or, you know, if you um, – if you were to make a, a a long cast, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to see. Um, there's some great parachute ant patterns that are also good for that. Uh, Travis parachute ant is one of my one of my favorites. I tie that one a lot.
3: Who is Travis? Um, I asked Rosenbauer once if he could talk to the actual people that designed some of the flies for Orvis because the Travis bead a bugger may have been one of the greatest streamers Orvis ever sold and discontinued. Do you know who Travis is? I don't know. No, I don't. My goodness, I can't. urban legend.
1: <laughs> but you know, and, and it also depends on like the time of day. My my all time favorite dry fly that like no one ever fishes. Chubby Chernobyl. No, that one. That that's a great. That's a great fly, and I love that fly. But but it's the white wolf. You know, if it's dark out and the fish start rising, especially to a spinner fall. Or, you know, if you wait in the evening and, and you know you've got a you've got a nice hatch going and there's fish rising all around, you're struggling to see your fly. I I'm almost to the point now where when it turns dark, I just tie the I tie like a size 10, 10 or 12 white wolf on and I just fish that over the risers because I can see it really well. Um, it's suggestive of a lot of things. They're definitely not as picky in the dark. And at nighttime, you know, just the moonlight somehow reflects off of that white those white posts like that and you know I've of uh I've stand I've stood next to really, really good anglers um and and went fish for fish with them with that fly. I, I think it's just because you can you can see it so well. You know, I have so much confidence in that fly, it's it's unbelievable. And I and I think it's probably my confidence in the fly that just makes me makes me fish it better and hone in on it and just, you know, wait for that wait for that eat.
3: There sounds like there's thumping in the background. Uh I think that was meat cracking a beer. Before that. All right. What about two fly rigs? Are you gonna do a yeah. white wolf? Because I love I love a wolf fly with an RS2 behind it. That to me,
2: yeah. Whew,
3: I can have a that's full a, day of trout fishing with that that rig.
1: That that's a great that's a great rig, you know. I, I think you know, I think with dry fly fishing number one is you know when you're when you're fishing a you know when you're prospecting you know prospecting is is you know you're blind casting a dry fly to likely areas that that would hold that would hold fish that might come up and eat a dry fly um, a few things that are important is you know one you want to fi- get you want to fish something that's going to get the fish's attention. You want, um, you want to fish a fly that gives the re- a reason for that fish to, you know, rise when it otherwise wouldn't have. And so to do that, you typically want to, want to fish a, a fly that's larger, you know, like a, a size 10 or a size 12 or, you know, sometimes even a size 8. And those wolf patterns like you like you talked about or or a chubby Chernobyl or um you know a Turk's tarantula is a favorite of mine. You're a, a
3: Turk? Is that a real person?
1: I don't know. My I don't goodness. know.
3: That, Come on, dude. You're the manager.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure it is. <laughs> you know, I think that I think that first you need a big fly. And you know, a lot of times it's kind of the uh the attention grabber deal, you know. So some pe- some people say that, you know, you might be able to get them to look at, you know, a large fly like a like a royal wolf, but they might not eat it or refuse it. But you might be able to get, get their attention with it. And so if you, you know, drop a smaller fly like an RS2 or a, a Griffiths gnat or something a foot behind it, you know, they might they might look at the large gaudy fly. Um, and while they're up there. You know, they might uh, they might be fooled by the by the gnat. Typically, I don't fish the big fly, small fly rig, but I definitely see the merit. I will I will typically fish in a merger behind it, right? So, you know, if I'm seeing if I'm seeing fish, you know, rise, you know, like on a on a far bank, and you know, I pass a you know I pass a, a parachute atoms over it or something like that, a generic fly. I get a a refusal. I might not take the fly off and...
0: Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Honors have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com.
1: Tie another fly on. I might just take, uh, you know, a smaller emerger merger pattern and drop it off the parachute Adams and send it right into the same lane. All the while knowing he looked at the parachute Adams and may- maybe refused it, so he'll definitely look at it again. Right. Um, he might not take it, but he may take the fly directly after it. And, you know, I, I think that that's typically when I'm, when I'm fishing too, I'm usually not using two flies to, uh, to prospect. I'm usually throwing two flies at a rising fish.
3: As somebody who makes a living selling flies to people, what happens with your knowledge that trout are not as selective as they are yet. You have a customer who comes in insisting they need a size. 14 quill gordon for brook trout and only this stream is is where this exact size and, and fly works and you have someone that's adamant about that do you just say let me bring you over to the size 14 quill gordons or are you like brother let me sit you aside here and have a little talk
1: no I, I i sell them whatever whatever it is they're looking for you know first and first and foremost because you know what they're What they're confident in and and what they've read about, number one, is is extremely important, (laughs) you know, and and even if you don't even if you don't necessarily agree with it, it's it's definitely important. Like, you know, that person clearly did their diligence. I mean, if they came in and they're saying, hey, you know, I need this fly for this stream, because as you said, you know, this is where, you know, I know this thing works. I mean, why, why would you argue with that? but what what you can also do too is offer some of your own insight and your own suggestion to go along with that. And, you know, I mean, look, I mean we're in the business of selling flies. So, you know, of course I'm going to sell you the ones that you're looking for, but I might also give you some other local suggestions or some things that I might, you know, I might know to go along with it. I know that sounds like a super politically correct answer, but you know, unless it's some kind of egregious thing that's going to cause that, that customer to have a, uh an an experience out on the water that, you know, they're not going to be happy with. um, I'm going to sell them what they're, what they're looking for. All
3: right. What would your favorite mayfly be to fish and your most popular mayfly to sell?
1: So I I think on the East coast, everyone's going to have the same answer with what they sell. And that's probably the sulfur, right? I mean, you know, you can see sulfur's, any as early as late May and on certain rivers, you know, all the way through October um, on certain rivers, right? So it's a it's a really healthy you know prolific hatch that runs for a very long period of time here on the East Coast. You know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that wasn't my favorite, my favorite hatch to to fish. You know, I mean the it's freaking as a yellow bug. It's pretty big, you know, 16, 14. And it's just about everywhere. So, you know, that's probably the best selling mayfly for sure. And it's definitely, you know, one of my favorite hatches, but outside of that, it's really hard to beat the, the blue quill hatches on the, on certain rivers on the East coast. Not all of them get them, but, but that's like typically one of the first hatches of the year. And so, Uh, you know, if the weather's right, the fish are really, are really dumb, (laughs) you know, it's kind of the first time they're really looking up for a good size mayfly, you know, blue quills and red quills and quill gordons. That's a, that's a great time. And that time is really like kind of now, you know, and that's like late March, early April. That's when that really, you know, uh, starts going, Uh, the Hendrickson Hatch on the West Branch of the Delaware and uh, some of the other, you know, East Coast streams here in the and then you know northern part of the East Coast get these great Hendrickson certain times a year early. Um, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal hatch to fish if you haven't if you haven't checked that one out. You you really should. And then you know the the late season action you know is a lot of fun too. Um, I love fishing rivers in the shoulder season when people are, you know, have, have, are done, you know, I love going and throwing ants and September and October and beetles and, you know, little hoppers and it's a, it's a ton of fun, but you know, of, of course the West coast has its own mixed bag of things that are, that are phenomenal. Like, uh, you know, one of my favorite things that I used to do or, or that I, that I absolutely love is the, uh, is the Skowalla stonefly hatch in Missoula area? Just
2: um, stoneflies, you know,
3: past rubber legs. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, of I can't tie that fly for my life. You know, I don't know why yeah, I can't tie it. That's
1: a great fly. That would probably be in my top top ten. I don't really nymph much anymore, but um, when I did, that was that was always on my rig. Doc, you know, that, your,
3: the roof pool, some trout if they stop putting chlorine in it. That would be a good idea. (laughs) That'd be fun. Osprey might pick Uh, it off. Yeah. Now. All
2: right.
3: So what is your, what is your favorite stonefly pattern of fish? And what is most popular to sell? Thrice, have you ever seen an adult eaten by a trout on the East Coast? Rosenbauer says it doesn't happen. Wait a minute. Have you ever seen? uh, Rosenbauer says on his podcast that East Coast trout do not eat adult stoneflies. It's a theory of um, his. He also had a yeah, theory that jumping trout are caused by crayfish nipping at their bellies, which he mentioned once is more jokingly. but yeah, he doesn't
1: Tom and I have had this Tom and I have had this this argument about the well, not an argument, but this discussion about the adult stonefly thing on the on the east Coast more than once. You know, one, I disagree with him. You know, I, I know, I know for a fact that I have seen trout eating adult stoneflies on a regular basis on, on, I can think of two different occasions on two different rivers where I know I've watched trout eating yellow sallies. Now, I fished, I actually fished the Savage River with Tom Rosenbauer some years back. And him and I had this this discussion about the yellow sallies, and his you know he he talked about how he thinks that when they're eating the yellow sallies that they think that they're sulfurs, which you know in his defense I could see that I mean those those hatches kind of coincide at very similar times you know those yellow sallies start up kind of right as the as the the sulfurs are winding down. So, and they're roughly the same, you know, the same size, but I've definitely seen them eating the yellow sallies. Now I have caught plenty of trout on, you know, larger stonefly patterns like chubbies. And to answer your question, the chubby Chernobyl would definitely be my, my favorite, you know, stonefly pattern, uh, dry fly pattern but i you know but to tom's point like i have seen tons <laughs> tons of larger adult stoneflies popping and bouncing on on rivers and like yeah i mean i'm more surprised with how often they don't get eaten than when they do so although i disagree with if tom's contention is that it never happens
3: I'm going to disagree with him, but Tom's like, he's saying they're like baby pigeons. You don't see them not have an answer for baby pigeons, but that's the theory, right? You never see right. them like, a,
1: like a tree, a tree falls in the woods and you know, it does it make a sound type of thing. I mean, he's definitely onto something there. I mean, look, there's just not as many stone flies, you know, you see, you know, look, you you see the shucks up on the rocks all the time, but, but. You know, you're you're right. I mean, it's not it's not as prolific as the main flying caddisfly hatches that we have here. I have more often than not, when I see a big stonefly on the water, it more often than not
3: does not get eaten. <laughs> you know, do they have a, a noxious taste? Like water striders apparently taste nasty to fish. There's a chemical in them. I and was on do- a I was
1: I was literally on a stream not too long ago, quoting you what, with a guy. Sweet. Was it a good quote or something ridiculous?
3: Uh, no,
1: I, no, it was actually about the water striders.
3: Oh, don't bite, man. I, my daughter even knows not to grab them. And and, I, and he, the guy was asking me, like, why fish don't eat them? And I, and I said the same thing. Also, I, I've noticed that fish, when you've got a huge school, I don't know if you call them a school, there's got to be a name for a group of water striders. But when they're on the surface thick enough, fish will hide out in the shade underneath them. And if you can drag, say, like a damselfly nymph... Snow White Damsel, through that water, you will pick up fish left and right. I think it just creates sort of a like a security blanket above them where they feel a little less uh, scared of birds and other things, and they're going to eat more. This happens in Riverbend. Okay, how about caddis? Your favorite caddis pattern and the most popular caddis purchased in the store?
1: Well, and, and, you know, back to your mayfly thing really quick. The most popular mayfly purchased in the store is technically a parachute Adams. And then on the caddis side, the most popular purchased in the store is, um, is far and away the, the elk caddis.
3: Is that Uh, just cause it's just so buoyant and it has the, the appearance of fluttering wings on the surface when it's still.
1: I mean, look, the reality is, is people buy what you, what you suggest, you know, and that's that's the special of the day. Yeah, that's the, that's the reality of it, you know? Um, And, and I think that, you know, in most, most cases that, you know, most books you look in. You, you start talking about the the top five flies or the top ten flies, you know, things like parachute atoms and Elkhart caddis and wooly buggers and clouser minnows and and you know those types of things. They're phenomenal flies and they've obviously earned their place on those lists. Um, and I'm certainly caught, I'm sure, more fish than any other flies. You know, nymphs, you know, pheasant tails and hair's ear nymphs.
2: Um,
1: those are always going to be the best, the best selling for sure. But they're not always my favorites. You know, I have my own personal favorites. Like my personal favorite caddis pattern is is definitely an X caddis for sure. Do you know who Matthew is? No, I don't know who he is, but I, that's the one I like the best. Actually, I like the Matthews version of the X caddis with the um, with the black thorax and and you know the brown z line off the off the back. Uh, that's the that's the version of the X caddis that I like I like the most. Dan Davala, I've heard of that guy. We, yeah, yeah, we 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 do a lot of dry fly fishing together. You know, used to be more obviously much more often when he lived here, but um, now that he's moved on to Vermont, we, we try to get together once or twice a year. And
3: I need to go do on some one of those trips. F- yeah, fun. I got the drift boat. It, it literally yeah. is just collecting vines on it right now.
1: Well, we don't we don't like to drift boat fish on those trips though. Oh, see, like like when we go on those trips with um you know, Dan and I and Trent, we just sit on the bank, you know, we take like lawn chairs or folding camping chairs and, and cast iron skillets and like really, really good steaks and, and, and charcuteries and fancy beers and bourbons and coolers. And we just go down to a pool and just stay there all day and just, you know, like make, make casts at risers while the other two heckle. So we really don't fish like that hard, you know, we definitely catch fish, but Uh, It's like dry or die, and um, we just spend the time, like, you know, catching up and just enjoying ourselves and, you know, talking about family and friends and funny stories and reminiscing. And, you know, if a trout just so happens to rise, someone will, you know, someone will make a cast at it. Uh, I just wish they would let Dan work remotely from here. Yeah, that would be cool. (laughs) I bet you you could, too. You know, like, I've been up there. Like I've gone to work with him for a day, I I think, uh, at least at least one time. I feel like it's been more than once, but I've gone up there and like stayed with him in Vermont uh, a couple times and I went to work with him once. And um, I bet you he could, you know, and now now that, you know, this is going on with this pandemic thing, he has the he has the technology now to to work remotely. So
3: but they 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 love it up there. I feel like that the technology that Dan has to work remotely would be like my conversation with my in-laws today about them getting an Instapot and them not knowing what an Instapot is and that it's modern and convenient, but they still would cook everything in a pan. The old-fashioned way. (laughs)
1: Well, uh, you know, I I talked to him like when he first got it and he, you know, he was, he got it figured out and he was out in his garage and he's like, yeah, man, I got... I'm all hooked up with wireless and, you know, and, and I got lines coming out and I can talk to customers and talk to, you know, he, he got it figured out. But I mean, this is a guy like, you know, who, who doesn't own a cell phone, you know, and heats his house with a wood stove.
3: Bathe on, was it on Fridays? The family, <laughs> no. the family tub? I don't, I don't know if that's You got corn husks for <laughs> TP? That sounds like, that sounds like, uh, like urban legend. <laughs> I bet they have a complete, uh. What's the word I'm thinking of? Homestead.
1: Well, you know, I think they've got a lot of plans
3: for for that property they have. With a I think skate
1: park, probably,
3: or at least a half pipe.
1: Well, I think he's already got that going on. Like he's got ramps and stuff in his garage already built. So the it's really cool. Did
3: did he tell you the story about his house and the and the track D brothers? Possibly. We did have a very long Pappy Winkle induced conversation this yeah. uh about a year ago actually interesting well I'll, I'll let him save that story but but and the goat in montana <laughs> with the bourbon no that's a vermont story actually. that's yeah. a vermont i thought that was montana yeah. no no that's a vermont story that, too. a client told me about that <laughs> unless there's a montana story too where he's had more encounters with <sighs> I don't know. Go- okay I, th- I
1: think i think there can be only one one goat story but <laughs> <laughs> you know there there's he's got you know ten acres up there i think you know he's got a tributary of the batonkill called the green river that runs through the backyard and it's got you know wild browns and brook trout and stuff in it and, and the and some of the you know like iconic pools on the batonkill are right on the bottom of his street you know on the, the road there and, um, you know, you can, you can drive down to the bottom of this road and and uh, there's like a great covered bridge pool that's got like Norman Rockwell's old house on it, you know, and you can fish that we've done it before and, you know, fish this pool and it's gorgeous and has great fish in it. Yeah, I think he has plans to, uh, you know, to get into some small animals like, you know, chickens or goats and
3: uh, things like that. Just um, My buddy Owen had a tree fall today it. that almost took out his... Because we had some crazy wind, as you know. He almost lost his chickens today because some wind down in Fredericksburg. Had a tree come down between his house and the chicken coop. And you know that is a very precious thing right now during quarantine is to get your fresh eggs. Yeah, absolutely. So Dan needs to get a hold of some animals. Yeah. start I'm, his I'm, own, like, farm. You know, I, I don't, I, I've been talking to him on the phone, and
1: I, I don't think their lives have changed all that much. You know, I mean, his kids are homeschooled and, you know, Melody, Melody has, has always homeschooled the kids. So, you know, they're, they're kind of, it's kind of
3: almost business as usual for them, I think.
1: Right.
3: In this situation. Yeah. Do you have to pee or something? All right. So we talked about Mayfly Catastone. You mentioned briefly some terrestrials. Do you have specific patterns? Again, your favorite terrestrials and then... Ones that customers would come in looking for. Now, Orvis. I want to say like 2000, 2001. Orvis used to sell this crazy dense Chernobyl ant. That when it landed, you could hear it from 20 feet away. And back when I had private access to the little jay at Spruce Creek. That Mm -hmm. fly was unbelievable in what it would produce. But what do you like to fish? And tell us. Also, about the Chubby Chernobyl, because that's sort of maybe the last 10 years that fly came out. Anything you could tell us about it? Also, what customers come in for?
1: Yeah, so that fly is not a good seller on the East Coast, and it should be. People on the East Coast fish flies that are too small, in, in, in my humble opinion. I think we've ingrained in their in their heads that, um, at least dry dry fly fishermen, we've ingrained in their heads that, like, you know trout are extremely picky and extremely selective and these dainty delicate little you know uh little things and and you know you gotta you gotta give the nod to the streamer anglers and you know just like everybody else i went through my big streamer phase you know streamer bros yeah yeah i went through that is mason a streamer bro we all did yeah, I think you know he he goes through phases. He I think he's more of a nymph a nymph fisherman, but he definitely does throw some some big
3: streamers too. he's yeah. catching some redfish on quarantine. Yeah, yeah, looks like it.
1: Yeah, you know, and there's not that there's anything anything wrong with that at all. I mean, I I used to love chucking those things and catching big fish too. But uh, anyway, they, those anyway, the the point I'm making is is those guys have taught us that the that like you know even when you're throwing those big flies what to me what's more amazing than how many more amazing than how many bigger fish you catch with those larger flies often it's how is how small some of the fish are that eat some of those large flies you know i mean as a warm water angler i'm sure you you come across that often you know if you're chucking a big half and half often a small fish will attack that thing and it's the same in 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 my opinion with with dry flies you know often you know those you know, flies like chubby Chernobyl's and, and those larger larger dry flies are often the ones that will get a a bigger fish to come up off the bottom or you know, out of his holding lie to to eat, you know, eat a
3: large fly. So, you know, if you're prospecting, that's a phenomenal fly to So like uh Joan Wolf in her casting video compared to the the world Wolf to be a Strawberry shortcake, delicious. Whereas the chubby Chernobyl is like a Thanksgiving dinner with the trimmings. It's just huge meal for anybody that wants to eat it. It's a good bass yeah. fly too.
1: No, and that and that sounds that sounds like a good analogy to me. You know, so so that's probably my favorite that, and and I really like that Travis uh, that that para ant. Um, you know, it's super simple simplicity is is critical with flies i think the more intricate they get the less fish they catch
3: <laughs> right so do you have favorite hatches you like to travel to that's a good that's a good question
2: no
1: no you know i i think the best time to fish is when you have time you know there's definitely there's definitely hatches that Happen on certain times a year that I'm excited to fish. Um, the sulfurs again are, are one, and the Hendricksons. Some of the some of the larger hatches like the, the green drakes and um, you know isos and, and things like that. If they're happening, I'm excited about it. But I won't I won't specifically travel somewhere for a, a to fish a specific hatch. No.
3: Would there be a bucket list of hatches then that would negate that, like a Mother's Day hatch here or say the lemming hatch here or the moon mice hatch in New Zealand is there a specific hatch that if you were there at the right time would just blow your mind
1: oh i'm sure i mean absolutely yeah i mean i'm i'm sure there's there's plenty of hatches that would blow my mind and i've been in situations with some of the hatches that you've just described that have in fact blown my mind but you know uh I, I'm never gonna make any travel arrangements um, around a particular hatch. Now, if I decide one day that I want to, you know, pony up and go to New Zealand, which is one thing that's on my bucket list to do, I've always wanted to go there. Of course, I'm gonna want to go at the best time of year, you know, <laughs> and when and when, you know, the fishing is going to be the best, and maybe we'll, you know, try to uh, arrange it around a specific hatch. But, but no, I don't. I don't currently or have ever done any travel
3: specifically for a, for an insect hatch. No. All right. Let's talk about fly tying. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Do you have a preference for modern versus classic materials and patterns that you're going to tie yourself? And yeah. what vice are you tying on these days?
1: Well, I got a, I've got a couple of vices that I tie on, but the one I probably tie on the most, you know, kind of day in day out is the Rinzetti traveler. 2000 or whatever that whatever it is i mean that's you know there's a lot of great vices out there that i like and i'll I'll, i might consider buying those vices one day if if this Renzetti ever breaks but this i've been tying on this thing for 10 years (laughs) like it's it's great so there's no reason to get rid of it (laughs) all right you know you know what i mean like i I, sometimes at work when i do tying lessons and things like that at work i'll use the uh the Regal, which I, I really like that one too. That Regal's phenomenal, a phenomenal vice. I tie on them I, usually when I'm doing lessons. I'm typically using that vice when I'm an instructor, and that's mostly just because that's what I have access to at work. And and those are um those are phenomenal. I love the jaws. The pedestal is very heavy. I'm a clumsy guy, so I knock things over. So that big that big you know brass pedestal is uh is excellent i also i also really like the material holder and i will i will also say that just because you know the rinzetti is a is a rotary vice but i don't i don't use any rotary functions uh, i i won't say i don't i do on occasion but if if i didn't have access to a rotary
3: vice it it wouldn't it wouldn't bother me in the slightest okay do you have a preference of materials you like for dry flies? And I'll preface this with, when I was at the first, uh, Edison fly fishing show. I was next to a guy, I forget his name from the Delaware or a good friend of Richie's. And he was using EP fibers and tying these crazy split wing spinner dry flies that I think I'm going to have to learn how to tie while I'm home quarantined. Yeah. Um... That's something I want to learn, but do you have a preference A preference for Materials you're going to use. So we already talked about the Patriots and Chubbies and Do you do yeah. synthetic do you do natural?
1: So I I, I I, You know, if I had to pick it would be natural However, I really like flies that have a combination of both, you know, to, to best suit their 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 need, you know, your needs. So, um, uh, you know, a perfect example is Yeah, uh, you if I'm, if I'm fishing, like, if I'm fishing, like, uh, uh, slow, slow-moving pools or, or softer runs with not a lot of riffly water, rivers that don't have a lot of gradient, I'm typically fishing, like, Comparadun-style pe- patterns. Um, it's funny, like, you know, you go up to the, you know, I, I go up to the Catskills at least once a year, and I always love to fish the west branch of the Delaware um, and sometimes the upper east. And it's funny, it's like, you know, I never, never... To use any catskill patterns there. I, you know, I always use lower profile flies and, um, you know, a Comparadon style bug with a, um, like a xelon shuck uh, for a tail is, is one of my favorites. So that's a perfect example of natural, uh, you know, fibers with the elk elk hair, Comparadon hair. And I'll, I'll often use like a, like a goose biot for a body. You know, one of my favorite emerger patterns is a breadline red line emerger, uh, and it has like a little tuft of snowshoe and, you know, some some dubbing and whatever color of mayfly you're trying to imitate and it's got uh, uh, you know a zelon shuck and a, and a goose biot, you know, palmered around for the for the body. So uh, you know the Patriot's another good example where it's got like a you know a tinsel or a flash shaboo body, but it's got, you know, calf tail wing and, you know, hackle. So, you know, I think, I think it's best to, to, you know, embrace the, the new materials while also, um, you know, taking advantage of, of, you know, natural fibers too, but I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't specifically, you know, I, I tie a lot more for like function and, you know, I, I like the way that the natural, like old school flies look a lot better and I enjoy fishing them, but they're not always as functional as some, you know, when you add some of the newer synthetics make, make things a lot, a lot simpler to tie.
3: What would you consider some of the older patterns? Say we've got new listeners that are home quarantine, and this is maybe their first fly fishing podcast they're ever going to listen to. What would you consider an old school pattern versus a new school pattern? That's a, that's a really good question. I figure we're going two hours with this conversation, so we might as well dive deep sure so you know
1: what's interesting is is the advent of dry flies and like their evolution is not as dramatic as other types of patterns right so if you look at like you know what was the what was the game changer of of you know the 1920s or 1930s you know like you, you know better what, what, hackle what, than others maybe but was that a no i mean like, like you think about it like the big the big streamer of you know as far back as a hundred years ago looks something like the you know like a gray ghost or oh, a mickey like
3: stevens uh, kind of wet right. fly streamers
1: exactly so so that's like a major difference you know um you know even nymphs you know now we've got all this fancy material and you know woven flies and different glues and resins that we use and all this stuff you know the wet fly for instance doesn't even exist anymore for all intensive purposes which is unfortunate it's a very effective way you know there's Do you even carry Hornbergs in your shop? Yes always that's a that's a great that's a great fly that's a great fly. Um, I do, I do still carry those. I I have a a very small, um, selection of, of wet flies, you know, like a couple, you know, March Brown wet, and just a couple of the classics, um, for the people that do, do still enjoy to do that. And and it's a, it's a forgotten art, effective way to fish. And, and, you know, this, this is obviously a dry fly talk, but you know, there's a difference between soft hackles and wet flies and nymphs. What's Those going are... on in your background? Uh, I don't know. It sounds like some ambulances. That's or not good. Going down Clarendon Boulevard, yeah. But you know, dry flies haven't changed as much, right? As as streamers. Streamers have,
3: um, have evolved more in the every year. It's exponential. What goes into making ridiculous streamers? But you're right. Trout fly dries are kind of. There hasn't yeah. really been an, a, a massive evolution or influx of modern materials to make them unrecognizable, as you said, what they would have been a hundred years ago. Right. I mean, foam. Foam has has certainly changed some things. You know, um, polypropylene that floats. Right. Yep, absolutely. It's all still deer hair, elk hair, moose hair. Right. Not it's all deal. the same stuff. It's
1: all it's all the same stuff. I mean, sure. You know, like, you know, you start to see extended bodies and, you know, and, and and in some cases you see foam versions of old classics. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think that most of those most of those bugs are are very similar to at least what I what I see in the old books. You know, the chickens are better quality, though. <laughs> sure.
3: Everyone says that. Thanks to Whiting, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, what would you tie to make a fly more buoyant? Anything you would introduce to your your pattern? hmm And yeah. we can go into floatants yeah. here. If so like,
1: yeah, we 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 can. So the first thing I would do to make a fly more buoyant is I wouldn't change the fly. I would keep the same fly, but I'll add a couple extra wraps of hackle, or a little bit more calf tail. Or a little bit more. I'll overdress the fly is what it would tr- be traditionally called. So, you know, I'll, I have three different versions. I, I fish that that Charlie Mech fly a lot. That Patriot in the in the late spring and early summertime, you know, because there are a lot of sulfurs around. So that's my big searching pattern is is that Patriot fly. I just I just like it. I can see it real well. But I try I tie three different versions of it you know i try one version where i know i'm gonna fish it in pocket water and it's real heavy so it's like a it's like a it might be a size 14 or 16 hook but there's enough material on there that it could be a 12 so i'm overdressing the fly with material so it's got a few extra you know a couple extra acts of hackle it's a little bit more you know calf tail on the post i got a little bit of extra you know i might i might sometimes even take the you know usually for that fly i'll use like um Hackle barbules for the tail, I might instead use some elk hair for the tail, you know, or compare hair and stick it in a hair stacker and use that for the tail, just to bulk it up a little bit more so I can see it and it can float higher, you know, and you can do the same thing to make a fly a little bit lower of a profile, right? So if you know, okay, look, you know, I I can tie a, a parachute fly real well, uh, you know, and I know I'm going to be fishing a lot of like a lot of, uh, you know, Tom Bolt's ta- taught me this trick. You know, you tie like a. Uh, if you got fish that are a little bit pickier, you take a size. You can know, take a larger hook, and you can put a lot less material on it and underdress a fly, um, to kind of give it that that lower lower profile. If you're fishing a lot of flat, you know, flat pools, where you might find f- picky fish.
3: Tell <laughs> the folks who Tom is. Tom Vaults is
1: um, is an old friend of mine. I actually just talked to him a, a, a few years ago. Um, he's one of my many mentors in this sport. Tom's been around for, you know, since the dawn of day. And he's um, he's up in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And he fishes some of, he, he got- Hallowed them. grounds to me. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, he fishes some a lot of the older, iconic streams on the East Coast. Um, you know, the LaTorte, Falling Spring, Big Spring. mm mm yellow breeches mm. and he's he's a just an amazing guide and um and a and a very very good friend
3: and he's got a his dry flies are that's something else
1: yeah yeah he's he's one of the best i mean he's you know, you know pennsylvania state fly tying champ multiple times his best fly in my opinion is the i can see it midge it's a, a little parachute midge pattern. that's his pattern
2: yeah
3: the yeah, i see i, I-, I? yep yeah. Yeah, I remember yeah, when that came out in the Orvis catalog. I was like, oh, one. Yeah, that's a that's a Tom Baltz pattern. I did not uh, know that, Mr. Martini. Yeah. That was his fly.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think all of this fly talk, to be honest, is is important, but none of it it's it's none of it is anywhere near as important as the casting and the approach and just the the, the confidence. You know, we can, we can sit and talk till we're blue in the face about flies all day long, but honestly, it's really, you know, in, in my opinion, the flies are the, are the most insignificant
3: piece of the puzzle. So before we get into presentation, I have some other fly tying questions and then we'll go up into the presentations. Do you have preferences for your hook size, style, strength, eye size? Do you do... Like a specialty hook, like a clink hammer, for specifically for tying a, p- a pattern. When you're sitting out to tie dries, what are you picking out of your hardware, and why?
1: Okay, well, it depends on the fly. Obviously, there's very different, you know, very different hooks for very different things. Typically, if I'm if I'm tying a mayfly, I I usually start with the um, the Orvis uh, forty six forty one. Which is their big eye dry fly hook, right it's got an oversized eye so you can thread it easy and it's got a really tiny little barb that's easy to mash and that's just kind of their one of their standard standard dry fly hooks that I tie most of my my uh mayflies on it that are you know smaller than a, a you know twelve or smaller right if I need to if i'm if I'm tying something that's got like a That might be like a longer bodied mayfly, like an ISO or a Drake or something like that. I go with a different, I might have to change it up and go with a different hook. If I'm tying a, you know, a stimulator or something that might be a a stonefly, um, I'm obviously going to need a much, uh, a much larger hook and potentially something with a, uh, with a curve. So uh, yeah, I mean that's my but my standard I probably tie most of my dry flies on that uh on that forty six forty one. Now you
3: like the straight eye versus a downturn eye and if so why? To be perfectly honest as it relates to dry flies. Sit on the water differently? A little surface
1: tension action? Some people say some people say that it does. I don't I, I don't think it does. Like if I'm putting a bunch of hackle on it, the hackle is you know, like especially on a mayfly, the hackle is gonna perch on the water anyway, right? And if and if I'm using a um, using it to tie like a comparadon style fly, I typically want it to uh, or a or a parachute style fly. I want it to ride a little bit lower on the surface, so that's why I like the straight eyes for for that kind of thing. All right. um, but I'm not super picky about it in all honesty. And then if I'm and typically if I'm tying something longer, right, like uh, like if I want to do like a longer, like a stone fly or or a hopper, you know, I tie my like Chernobyl's and my hoppers on that 1638 Orvis which is a two X long, two X long dry fly hook. But you know, I, I use other, other hooks too, but those are, I guess those are my two kind of go-tos then. Are you a barb smasher? Always. I, I smash them before I smash them before I put them in my box, just so I don't forget.
3: They also, If you got a foam box, man, barb flies will mess up a foam fly box. Yes. Yes, they will, man. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a barb smasher. I mean, I don't, I'm I'm one of those people. I believe that barbs were put on hooks initially to hold the worm on.
3: That's what George winter. told me.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that that's the deal. I, I think that tension keeps the fish on, you know. And if I lose one out of every ten fish or whatever because I don't have a barb, I don't really that doesn't really bother me so much. I think. That's
3: Do you have a preference good. of your thread when tying a dry fly? Yeah, you know, I I I think that people overcomplicate thread. <laughs> I use three colors in two sizes. It's either six aught uni or two ten denier slash orvis bass thread.
1: Yeah. And that's that, about uh,
3: all I use. Or I use mono. Six six aught.
1: I mean, man, that is a that's a great like if I had to pick two, th- those would probably be those would probably be it.
3: Yeah, I,
1: I I will say that it's it's nice to have it's kinda like um it's kinda like my feelings on like seven X and six X. Like I just you know there's you know 1% of the times you'll ever need that but yeah i guess 6x uh the, the you know the 6 i use the the Orvis stuff and um and it works really well but i've used other things in the past too but but 6ot is uh is my favorite and i typically try to match the color but I guess there are some times. Like if I'm doing something really small, like sometimes I'll tie like really small parachute atoms, like twenties. And uh, I don't I don't ever tie or fish anything below a twenty ever. But I will use eight ot for, for that. But I don't use any I, I almost never use three ot thread or anything anything in between there. I'm just like you. Like I go from six ot to you know, heavy, to, yeah. To, as, as George and you will
3: call it goat rope.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah.
3: All right. Let's talk about some of the hardware you're going to use before we talk about the, the water you fish, sure. what length leader would you be using with your specific rod?
1: Well, you know, and again, right. I mean, the type of fishing you're doing is, is more about the environment, uh, The the length, the size and length of the rod. Um, Is more about the the fly that you're throwing and the the environment than you're throwing it in than it is the fish. You know, as an example, you know, my favorite kind of all day, everyday rod is going to be uh, an eight and a half foot five weight. Uh, I thought you were
3: going to go with your crazy sevens again. That's steelhead. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Seven weights for steelhead. What about action? So I think Orvis should bring back specifically two rods. All right. Henry's fork in the tippet. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. You cannot get better trout rods than those two. Yeah, those two to great. me are like a wine collector finding like a 1988 uh, Lafitte Rothschild. Like <laughs> it is absolute perfection.
1: So, man, I would say that uh, I like softer rods, you know, for... Not even just for dry fly fishing. I'm I'm a, I'm just kind of a soft rod kind of guy, you know, or or medium action. Like, you know, I, we went out, I went out to, to fish um, last night in the middle of the night. Um, I blanked, but I went down to the tidal basin at a high tide.
3: I'm going to say that wind played a, played a factor in. Otherwise, you would have gotten some stripers and some, I don't know if perjuring yet, but you would have done well if it hadn't been so windy
1: yeah with that low real, air pressure and 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 that low air pressure it was also blowing the tide out too because it was coming out of the north you know i was throwing like a a pretty good size two watt half and half on a um on a 250 grain or excuse me a 200 grain sinking line and i was throwing a helio orvis helios three nine and a half foot six weight f which is a slower which is like a medium action you know little bit more finesse rod. So yeah, I, I enjoy like softer rods in general. So yeah, eight and a half foot, five weight, uh, super fine touch and a nine foot four weight super fine carbon are my two go-to dry fly rods that I use most
3: often. What about small stream? If you got a canopy over you,
1: I never, never go below eight feet. You know, uh, I I have a seven and a half foot three weight rod, um, but I typically fish. Uh, I've got an old sage, something or other. It's a great rod. I can't remember what it is, but it's a it's a sage. It's an eight foot four weight, and I have had it for. I don't know, twelve years and it, it does me really well on most most small streams. I like the little bit of extra, um extra reach just so, you know, when I make my my forward cast and, and the and the rod lands I can keep a little bit more fly line off the water. I don't I typically fish, you know, brook trap streams all directly upstream and usually like the trees don't grow out of the center of the water. So I, I typically You know i'm casting kind of with a high elbow sort of joan wolf style right over right overhead i don't typically have a problem with the the trees above me i mean i get caught in the trees and snagged just as much as everybody else but you know i i think those longer rods in smaller streams are are very helpful i mean things the advent of things like tankara and um i think all prove uh that the exception is the rule in those, in those cases, in my opinion, we debate about that on our, our
3: forum all the time, as you
1: know, Indeed.
3: Right. <laughs> so so leader material, are you going to go fluoro or nylon? And then would you differentiate your tippet? Let's say you were doing a nylon leader, but fluoro tippet, is that something you would do? Yeah. And what do you recommend I, for clients at the, or customers? It. That's a great, that's a great question.
1: So there's a, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of misgivings or, or unsubstantiated information, if you will, that is sometimes disingenuous that I hear in, in fly shops uh, in my, in my experience across, across America. And and a lot of these things have to relate, they relate to rod length and leader and tippet. Uh, And one is that, that Fluorocarbon is specifically for nymphing and saltwater fishing because it has a faster sink rate, which is true. However, when you're fishing 5X tippet or 6X tippet, you know, and you have a, you know, whatever the the diameter is if you fill the sink up with water and you stick a bunch of floating and dressing on that tippet and you drop it in the water, it doesn't break the surface, whether it's nylon monofilament or fluorocarbon monofilament, um, at least for a while. So I think in these smaller tippet sizes that we're talking about, I think, I think fluoro is fine. However, and, and I do know the facts are that, that, there's much more abrasion resistance for the fluoro. So especially if you're fishing for like brown trout uh, who are a little bit more toothy or bass, you know, have that kind of like sandpaper mouth. And we're talking teeth.
3: Yeah, and we're talking dries, right? So we can talk other species, right? Not just trout. Redfish will eat a dry fly. I've seen it on yeah. the the, uh, the fly fishing film tour. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's some things I really love about fluoro.
1: You know, there's a lower light refraction rate, so it's much more invisible under the water, and it, it you know, one good thing about fluorocarbon um, is that it, it doesn't, it lasts much longer because it's not as biodegradable, so as long as you're, you know, doing a responsible thing and, and not throwing the scraps in the water, you know, that could be a good thing, unlike the nylon that, that degrades a lot, a lot faster. So, there's some excellent properties, but but the thing that isn't talked about with the fluoro, is it's a little bit more rigid, right? It's not as, as supple. And so as it relates to dry fly fishing for presentation reasons, I actually prefer the nylon product. So I fish the, um, Super strong. Yeah. I fish the Orvis super strong quite a bit. And, and sometimes I'll fish, sometimes I'll even fish the, uh, the super strong Bimini tippets in, in certain scenarios. Yeah. I, I, I prefer the nylon personally, now I will say this, if I'm banging like big hoppers on a bank, you know, if I'm if I'm floating somewhere out west or, you know, sometimes we'll do this um on the Holston. The 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 South Holston's one of my one of my other favorite rivers that I love to dry fly fish. Everyone goes there to fish streamers. And it's a, great- a
3: hatch factory. Why would you go there to fish streamers when that stream is known? <clears throat> now, it's for got the a lot of crazy bugs it produces. It's got a lot of big fish, you know,
1: Um, so guys, yeah, they love to go there and chuck the, and chuck the big streamers and, you know, and look, it's a, it's a good place to do it. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a phenomenal tailwater that's got a lot of big fish and there's a lot of fish there and it's definitely one of the best, best fisheries on the East coast. You know, I, I go down there. um, I used to host trips down there. One of, my, one of my best friends in this, in this industry, John Hooper, is, uh, he runs uh, South Holston River Lodge and, and is a, just a phenomenal guide. And, you know, I, I fish with him and, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these guides, they wanna, you know, they wanna produce either a lot of fish or a big fish for clients and, and, and make them really happy. But, you know, it, it, if you get the right guide and the right angler, And, uh, the right attitudes, you can float that river and just kind of, you know, take your time and post up on targets. And you can find a lot of, a lot of big fish that will just come up and come up and eat dry flies. And it's the same on the, um, on the West branch of the Delaware too. You know, there's, uh, I always say on the, on the, on the D, if you catch 10 fish on that river, if you catch 10 fish, one of them is going to be close to 20.
3: it's right. going to be a brown, a, right? Yeah, that's
1: right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, mm-hmm. there's an average size on that river, and I'm sure it changes, but there's an average size on that river. And, and I'm, I'm saying if you're throwing dry flies, right? I'm not talking about streamer fishing to catch a 20-inch fish, because you can do that there too. But it, I can't tell you how many very large fish that that I've caught and seen caught on a on a size 16 rusty spinner you
3: know what would you catch that big fish on in uh montana with tim
0: which one the, uh, the bull trout man that what, big what fish, fish. Oh,
3: that, the, was a, that was that on that was the size of a four-year-old yeah that was on a streamer okay.
1: that, that was on a streamer but you know it was funny like we were dry fly fishing right before that we thought that was going to be a rainbow That was an interesting fish. We, uh, I remember the guide, Monty, we were, we were doing, uh, it was late season and we were doing uh, caddis, like big caddis patterns, searching patterns on the bank. And uh, there was just a, we, we came up to an area where he said that, you know, look, we, you know, I had, I had clients all season have been, you know, hooking, you know, small cutthroat in in this in this little at the top end of this little run right where it dips down into this pool and gets into some nasty water and i think uh you know nymphing all all season long and he's like i think there's a big rainbow down there and uh i was like all right well and i you know threw on a streamer and made a couple pools and bam you know there it was but anybody any you know it's funny that any single person i think on that boat would have caught that at least at least hooked that fish that day that was a right place right time
3: that was not a a skill type of thing whatsoever <laughs> you only get that skill working in orvis tyson's man <laughs> I don't know. it's like having I don't know. panera on one side and outgoing <laughs> sweet frog on the other
2: <laughs> and i'm still
3: pissed i didn't grab all the chairs from the dumpster when sweet frog went out of business oh man <laughs> they had table like bistro tables and chairs i grabbed three chairs I'm pretty sure my wife threw them out because I didn't. And they're gone from my backyard. (laughs) That power from working with George. Yeah. And George is phenomenal. I love George to death.
1: I I miss working with him. Let's talk about Tim Linehan for a second. We need to get him on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He would, I'm sure he would love to do a podcast with you. I mean, he's, he is one of the most electrifying individuals. Uh, I mean, he is – there is no human being alive that has as much energy as Tim Linehan. He is far and away one of, one of my favorite guides um, that I've ever known, and, and his outfit and his guides and, and really, you know, his wife Joanne – um, they're they're just phenomenal people and just a first rate operation up there at that's uh, Linehan Outfitting Company um, out of Libby Montana and you know I've hosted a lot of trips all over and and that's by far one of my one of my favorites um, the uh, they fish the Kootenai River up there the Yak sometimes the Clark Fork or the Columbia they do trips in Missoula they do trips on them you know they spend a certain time. Uh, part of the year on the Missouri, but the Kootenai is just a really special fishery um, in my opinion because it's it's very remote all things considered. You know, it's a very big river. I think it's the largest tailwater in Montana. It has some very large fish uh, in certain parts of it. I think the state record rainbow trout is, is caught, is, is out of there. They have some very large rainbows in the in, in Libby and those are wild rainbows too. And there's, uh, there's excellent cutthroat fishing there. There's the occasional brown trout. And then, um, uh, although you, although you can't target them, um, there are bull trout in that, in that system that are native and, and, um,
3: I've never met a more aggressive fish. You can say bluegills will eat absolutely anything. When I experienced bull trout in Idaho, there was nothing more aggressive I've encountered on a fly rod.
1: Yeah, they, you know, like I said, yeah, that was, that was a very, very big fish. I don't, I don't know, you know, at the time the, the, the guide there, well, the guides there, it, you know, some of which have been there more than 20 years, they were convinced that that was the, the biggest one they had seen. So they get, yeah, they get pretty out of that river anyway, and they get, they get pretty massive, but they're small ones too. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've caught little ones like on the Blackfoot on on nymphs <laughs> i remember i remember one year we were fishing uh we went to we were in missoula in april and hoping to get into
3: oh we were at the um the orvis guide rendezvous yeah when you saw the otter up on the pass
1: um yeah and we we were uh and i was there with hank patterson that year he does not like snakes or cilantro no <laughs> he's a he's a really funny guy and we were fishing uh I think he was doing like he was there for like a film tour type of deal or whatever. But but some of us were fishing the Blackfoot and like, you know, the squalas weren't coming off and we were early or whatever. And there was still snow on the ground. And we so we were fishing like, you know, Pat's rubber legs and big prince nymphs.
3: Who is Pat anyway? Uh, I don't know. We don't know Travis. We don't know Matthew unless it's Craig Matthews. And we don't know Travis. It's
1: Craig Matthews. That's what I thought. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's great, Craig, Craig. Craig Matthews. World, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're fishing Pat's rubber legs, catching little bull trout left and right. What's little? Right, right in there with the rainbows, and right out there, right in there with the cutthroat. You know, twelve, fourteen inches. All right. And you couldn't, you couldn't not catch them. You know, and and the thing is, you're
3: not, you're not allowed to target them. Yeah, no. All of mine were in Idaho. Were it went from cutthroat to bull trout. It was a clear, as if there was a title line, and you said, okay, stripers end here and smallmouth start here. Yeah. It it was there were no more cutthroat and it was nothing but bull trout. Wow. And I've I'm never not- seen eight to fifteen fish chase a streamer and fight each other, knocking into it, as bull trout did on that stream in Idaho with my bacon fly.
1: I like that bacon fly. I have one
3: of those in my box. It is that's if I ever get out of the boat again, I, I'm pretty sure my boat is going to have maple trees growing out of it in a week. <laughs> uh, what is, that, that's like the black one with the schloppen, right? Schloppen, man. No, I get rooster tails. Oh, okay. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah, I'm Yeah. That's like bud light. <laughs> All right. So what else have we not talked about dry flies in this conversation before we go into some random questions? Anything I've omitted, been remiss to ask you? Cast,
1: casting, cast.
3: casting, casting a presentation. Let's talk yep. about that. So, how do you present a dry fly with no drag? Is that what I should be asking you?
1: Yes, probably. I mean, because I think that's the most important thing, right? so oh, yeah. So it depends on it depends on um, uh, the size of the stream. So I'm a, I'm an advocate if the stream is small, right? And when I mean small, I mean like you know, it, it less than less than 25, 30 feet across, you should probably just stick with upstream, upstream presentations, right? So typically those streams are going to be higher gradient rivers. And I think uh, upstream presentations are pretty much indicative to those smaller streams. And, And the great thing about those upstream presentations is you almost always get a drag free drift when you, when you throw it upstream, not almost always, but, but often. So, you know, if you can break it down smaller than, maybe smaller than, I would say smaller than 25 feet across, you should almost always be casting, quartering directly upstream. And you should always, and, and this kind of holds true in my opinion to almost every dry fly cast, you should use more line than you need, right? So the trajectory of your cast, like let's say we're fishing a bull, a, a brook trout stream, The trajectory of your cast should be higher than it needs to be for the amount of line that you're casting. And what that'll do is it'll allow, and we've all done this by accident, right? If you throw a cast, if you throw a cast, the trajectory a little bit higher, you'll create what's called a parachute cast where the the line that you're using will turn over and then kind of like kick back a little bit and fall into a pile um of slack directly under uh you know the the fly line directly just beyond the fly line like what you want is some slack in the leader and maybe in the first couple of feet of the fly line so that slack is your friend um you know
3: slack is going to slack allow- is your friend could be a t-shirt or a bumper sticker
1: Yeah, absolutely. Slack is definitely your friend. And that is, if I had one statement to tell people about how they could be more successful dry fly anglers, it would be
3: slack is your friend. Um, Is that longer leader, rod tip higher so density or thickness of your, your fly line? So it
1: can be all of those things, and in all honesty. I would say that all of those things can, in fact, contribute to, to slack and suppleness of your presentation. But the casting piece is the most important. You can really manipulate learning a few different casts, like a parachute cast, a pile cast, um, you know, a reach cast, and a wiggle cast. And, and uh, th- those things can all manipulate the, the, the fly line in a way that you can get drift. But if you're casting directly upstream, you should Google a parachute cast which is going to allow you to, you know, you're going to make a cast with a with a, a higher trajectory than you need for the fixed amount of line that you're using. And it's going to allow the line to allow the fly to land accurately in the place that you're throwing it. But some of the, the leader and some of the fly line uh, might land in a little bit of a pile so that there's a little bit of slack for the current to pull out um, resulting in a drag-free drift. So that current will pull out that slack before it'll pull on the fly, uh, causing causing drag in the system. Right. Um, and so that's, that's typically basically stop the rod tip high, right? I always talk about uh, one of my favorite casting instructors. And unfortunately, we've, we've never met before. He's a, a Federation of Fly Fishers Board of Governor. His name is Peter Hayes. And I've plagiarized for many years, lots of his casting videos um, and some of his presentations. And I've adopted a lot of the uh, a lot of his his ideologies about casting into into the the many lessons that I do. And he talks about this backslash forward slash routine, where. I'm probably more well known for him with this more more well known with this backslash forward slash thing than he is because I say it all the time, but I, I'm pretty sure he came up with that. But you know the rod should when you stop the rod on the backcast it should look like a backslash on a keyboard, right? And when you stop the rod on the forward cast it should look like a forward slash on a keyboard. It's like Pete Kutz are
3: talking about a slice of pie. Oh, is that is that Pete? Pete's a great. I love Pete. That was a fun. <laughs> So These I'm sitting there having Did a burger you- for dinner. Uh-huh. And I look to my right and Pete Kutzer's at the bar. I'm like, what is going on here? Where were you? Salmon River.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. He Dirty Bill stuff- can't he float. Stuff- they
3: closed the ramps, I think, up there. Really? It was it was pretty strange, not only having tall Pete Kutzer at the bar, yeah. but one of my clients was there. Yeah. Who bought us around. <laughs> So I went skateboarding with Dan when you, I was in Vermont. Sk- Did you skateboard? I'm I'm
1: not any good. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to you know dabble or whatever. I'm not as good as can Dan. You ollie. Oh yeah, yeah. I can I can ollie. That's better than me, man. But uh, he was telling me how um, he went to you know Dan took me to the skate park that he's helping to build, and he told me that Pete was going down the half pipe. Ooh. And then he fell a couple times and it was a thunderous roar and the yeah. ground shook.
3: A <laughs> skateboard for Pete would be a snowboard with wheels or a right. boogie board with wheels. Yeah. It has to be proportional. So he's like, I mean, he's basically Andre the Giant. Yeah. Last time I saw him, he was like, anybody want a peanut? You know what's really funny is when you
1: see like uh, when you go up to uh, Vermont and you, you know, when you go like if you see like him and Tom Rosenbauer in the same room.
3: That's a dichotomy of sizes.
1: It is. It is. But anyway, this, this, this forward slash routine, you know, typically we, we stop the rod and then we drop the tip down towards the water. So when you're dry fly fishing, unlike streamer fishing, you, you want to keep that rod tip high, right? Right you want to keep as much line off the water as possible. So when you stop the rod tip really high and you send the trajectory of the line, a little higher than normal, you get a little bit of slack, right? You know, and, and it's almost, um, it's almost counterintuitive because when we're learning to cast, we're learning that we want to straighten the fly and the fly line and the leader all completely out. And when you're dry fly fishing, you almost don't want to do that, right? You almost want to land with a little bit of slack. Another great, cast to learn if you're making a downstream presentation for, for some reason, like you're fishing a, a back eddy or or something like that, is a pile cast. And a pile cast is a little bit a little bit different. A pile cast is is actually more of a mend. You you know you stop the rod tip high and you throw the line on a high trajectory just like a parachute cast. But you as soon as you stop the rod tip, then you drop it down towards the water and you get slack from the tip of the rod all the way out to the fly, right? So it's a much more slack in that, and the fly kind of lands in a pile uh, with the leader and the current straightens it out as it goes down, right? right, right. They- so a pile cast is for downstream presentations and a parachute cast is, is typically for upstream presentations.
3: Let's finish, let's talk about dry fly floatants, and then we're gonna have to ask you some, some random questions. Okay. What are your uh, preferences and what do you suggest when a client comes in? And would you ever say, you know what? This is my preference over say what you may have read, but you've never fished before. But in my experience, I'm yeah. going to endorse this.
1: Yes. Yes. There's three things.
3: One, three. two, three. Bring it. I so can count first, to three this late at night. Yeah. The first thing is, is that no one ever
1: uses anymore. And I don't know why this is. You grease Line dressing. I dress my fly lines every time I go out fishing with line, leader, tippet dressing, mm. right? It's a paste that I stick on the first, you know, 30 feet of my line, my entire leader and my tippet before I ever tie a fly on. That's part of my routine. And usually, unless I'm with somebody who I fish with often, usually somebody go, and they're like, what are you, what is that? What are you using? I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm dressing my line." And they're like, well, what is that? You know, even if they're an experienced angler. And and to me, that, that's the way I was taught is that you you first lubricate and you put this this whatever a petroleum substance on your fly line and your your leader. No damage to fly line? no i mean it's that's what it's designed for, right because the problem is is your your fly line is picking up all this grime and this grit and this nastiness and it's it's sinking and it it doesn't float as high, which causes drag and micro drag and and it keeps it it it's a it's a substance that keeps it floating high and it keeps prevents it from getting dirty so that's how I start the second thing that I've realized is this is a common uh, it's a common misconception. People uh, often ask me, "What do you prefer—water-based, petroleum-based,
3: or powder?" Do you do you get that? I do the petroleum-based. I think the last one I purchased was Loon from Mountain Angler in Breckenridge, Colorado. The Breck. From home,
1: the Breck. Those two substances are made to work collaboratively. It's not and or, right? It's both at the same time. So the way I was taught, and maybe I'm crazy, but the way I was taught and, and is that you pull the fly out of the box and you put the petroleum substance on initially on the fly to prevent water from getting in. right? Right. So I use the, the, you know, nowadays I use the Orvis gel, whatever float or Orvis
3: gel float, which I love that. And, you know, I I, was once told, don't put that on your waders. Don't put it on the waders. Is that a fallacy? I don't know. Wait, Someone said it would clog up the porousness of an Orvis wader and prevent water from being able to penetrate. That sounds like a complete oxymoron. We're going to negate that and blame that on larceny. Yeah, I I, I don't I, I'm, I'm gonna blame not. that on Larceny twenty two, Kentucky Straight bourbon whiskey. <laughs> and there is literally no endorsement of this. It's just the only sippy dude, my, Alana has been taking my sipping bourbons and mixing drinks with them.
2: Oh,
1: that's a that's foul on the play. Yeah. That is foul on the play, right? I there. got her
3: plenty of gin. Get and a, some- I got her a gin.
1: It's get like her some a, old brand of-
3: dude. That's what uh Davala drinks, no he drinks yeah. old
1: crow old granddad old old crow, he drinks old granddad too, but it's got to be bonded <laughs> and he'll he'll sip that he he's brought that on fishing trips before right. but he he uh, i think I think he's more refined now, you know uh the last couple times i've i've drank i have bourboned with him, he's had things that are you know i, I mean, sometimes'll bring basil
3: Haydens and mm. Um, You know who's been mixing drinks with that upstairs? No. The missus. Um, I'm like, that's what Evan Williams is for. That's for mixing. Everything else, the Basil Haydens, the Larceny, the the, all the other exotic-esque bourbons we have are not for mixing. No. And she's like, but it's quarantine. You only live once. I'm like, listen, lady, (laughs) it's my palate. You got gin, you drink your gin. I bought her a bunch of gin before this all happened. Let's do some random questions. You ready? Okay. Hit me. Are you related to anyone famous? Yes. Okay. Explain.
1: Yeah. Um, I am related to Chaz Palmentary.
3: You are not.
1: Yes. Yeah. My mother is uh, a Palmentary, and he is a... Get out
3: of town. I swear to God. Clevelander?
1: he's He's a second second cousin or something to that to that degree? All right. He is not a Clevelander. I believe he is from New York. But, uh
3: yes, we are we are in fact related. Now, I'm I've Okay, next question. Uh-huh. Where else would you be if you were stuck in a Groundhog Day because I've asked if you could fish anywhere on your own Groundhog Day, where would you be? And now that that is a reality of what we're living in because every morning is the same to me, if you could be stuck anywhere, else right now where would you be
1: and and this is fishing
3: Uh, i don't care dude it's groundhog day anywhere i would want to be
1: i would if i had to pick anywhere to be right now i would want to be at the like game seven of the nba championship game like that's that's
3: where i would be you're a basketball guy yeah. Now would you want LeBron you, playing for Cleveland or Lakers? Well, you know, here's the thing. I'm I mean, gonna sit back for the LeBron conversation now as a Clevelander.
1: Yeah, as a in a perfect world, I would want LeBron James playing for for Cleveland as a huge Cleveland fan. However, this is to me, this has been one of the most exciting NBA seasons that I've watched in many, many years um, as a fan. And and LeBron being, you know, 35 years of age, and this is his 17th year in the league, and he's leading the league in assists, and he's averaging, you know, 27 points a game. And he is honestly the, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, maybe not the greatest basketball player of all time, obviously, you know, that's, and, you know, to me, that's always going to be Michael Jordan, but, but as an athlete at 35 years old, you know, 17 years into his career, and he's, he's arguably, you know, right. And he's an MVP contender this year is maybe, I mean, that's just an amazing, an amazing feat. So,
3: you know, it's been a phenomenal season. He's a good dude too. Like all around good person, LeBron James. Talent has money, does good things with his money and his life and is a role model. He is. And he's great.
1: He's great for the sport too. You know, I mean, and, and other players love him and look up to him and he's a, he's a mentor for people and, you know, and not that Michael Jordan wasn't good for the sport, but Michael Jordan was a, was a ruthless competitive individual who terrified people, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, LeBron is looked at as more of a, you know, a big brother figure um, and sometimes maybe even a father figure for some of these, some of these guys, the way, um, the way he fosters his, his relationships with other players and um, helps to protect them and and helps them to you know foster and facilitate their their futures as um, as athletes is uh, is really good. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan. You know this year I, I'd like to see him with the Lakers. You know I, I think it's um, you know I'd love to see uh, uh, a Milwaukee with uh, Giannis Anta Tukumo versus um, uh, the the Lakers right now. That would be a that would be a phenomenal. Is... A phenomenal is Bunny expect. into the sports? No, my wife is not a uh, not a sports fan. I hear Damn. that. All right,
3: what's your most irrational phobia? Irrational phobia?
1: Yes. Oh, my God. Um, do, do you know
3: how this question started? Yeah. So no. there is an uh, – I'm going to blank on her name. She's Argentinian. She's a beer tie regular. She's dating a, another guy. that They both come to, to beer ties. I took them out last year, and she claims – that she has a friend that is scared of gumdrops. That is irrational. That is about the most gumdrops. There's not a Latin term for that phobia. Uh I'm going to look up my, I have my dictionary of word roots and combining forms right here. I guarantee you there's nothing about gumdrops. It's an unfounded phobia, but what about you?
1: All right. So this is, uh, uh, when I was a, when I was a little kid, I used to get um, night terrors and really this is kind of a, a a super bad dream. And I I used to have this, uh, this scary night terror that this, um, this like crazy lady would come and like tickle me in the middle of the night. And so I, I have a little bit of a phobia
3: tickled. Yeah. Yeah, Is there a name for this woman? I don't, no, there, there's no name for her. She was, it was just this, like, reoccurring. In Russia. there's Baba Yaga. She could be, like, a Baba
1: Tickle? Maybe. I mean, maybe, yeah. It was, like, she had, like, a creepy face that was, like, you know, super scary. And, um, and we're talking, like, I was, like, a kid, you know, like, six, seven, eight years old. And I'd, I'd have this reoccurring dream that this, like, psychotic woman would, like, come running up to stairs screaming and, like, violently tickle me.
3: You know, everyone's going to like tickle your, your side now if we ever have a beer tie again oh, in modern history. Uh, uh, and do you uh, know how thankful I am we don't have to shake hands anymore at a beer tie? <laughs> Fauci says no more handshaking. If you had a superhero power to make you a better angler, what superhero's power would you choose? I would like to. And it has to be a. a well, i hmm. It could be DC, <clears throat> Marvel. I don't care where your right. superhero comes from. It could be like that dude from. Popeye who could eat 40 cheeseburgers at once it would it would just be flight I, you know if I, I could love fly, be,
1: yeah yeah if I could fly I'd like do. Superman I could just go fish anywhere at any time and I would get really good because I could just get a lot of practice you know like all my free time I could just oh, I'm just gonna fly up to New Zealand you fly. could just
3: launch off your roof yeah yeah <laughs> okay if you had a time machine to fly back in time it could yes. be either a DeLorean, it could be a phone booth or what have you. Mm-hmm. And you can fly back in time to a pristine environment before modern humans destroy that place. Where would you go?
1: Wow. That's a great question. Kind of like Aaron on the office. I don't know if you're an office fan, but I can't but... watch it on office, dude. The worst place to be ever was an office. I would I would stay here in the in a good old USA Bay just because I've seen a lot, um, especially of like the American West, but, but just, you know, kind of this country in general, um, I would like to have seen here, uh, especially as it relates to trout fishing, what it would have been like, um, you know, before we came in and, and tampered with it, various logging industries and, and, and what have you. So, With the power of of going back in time and the power of flight, I think
3: I would be uh, a pretty awesome, awesome and well-traveled angler. (laughs) Do you have frequently asked questions you regularly get at the fly shop? And if so, is one of them extremely bizarre? Example, when I worked at Orvis Tyson, someone called once and asked if we sold raccoon traps.
1: So I get a lot of those uh, at Orvis and most of them are like, do you sell treadmills or do you sell jock straps or do you sell tennis rackets? We get a lot of that. Uh sport sporting goods type. Battenkill jock
3: strap. It's um, olive with a brown leather trim.
1: Mostly though, it the most consistent one is people looking for guns.
3: Well Orvis used to sell guns in the nineties. Yeah. You can but, buy but shotguns I mean- at the Orvis Tyson's.
1: Yeah, and I I try to explain them, and people say that and are always like, well, you know, it, it says that you're a licensed firearms dealer. And, you know, I try to explain to them that's like, yeah, we sell like $6,000 bird guns with like, you know, silver etchings. And, you, Can you know,
3: imagine shooting one of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's a. All right. So if you were going to eat a hot dog, would you put ketchup or mustard on it?
1: Mustard. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: you know, my wife is also. There's a lot of
1: things with hot dogs. Are there in. Filipino hot dogs? Yes, and and what? they and let me tell you something. I need okay? to hear this now. So there's a company out there. I think it's called Pure Foods, and they make red hot dogs. Now these these hot dogs are definitely dyed with various colors, and there no there's no beef in them. But these Filipino hot dogs,
3: they put them in it's spaghetti. Not kosher, is it? Spaghetti. S- wait, wait. And spaghetti- sugar.
2: Yes, spaghetti. Okay, I'm gonna
3: look this up. What are it's they like, called in the Filipino world? Uh, Filipino? I don't know the Tagalog, I don't,
1: Tagalog is the language. I don't know what the uh, if there's a name for it other than you know spaghetti. But but their spaghetti has a ton of sugar in it. It's a red sauce and these chopped up little red hot dogs
3: in it. I want to murder that right now. Yeah, good. Look at Filipino up. spaghetti history, how the hot dog packed pasta took over. Thrillist. Yeah. So okay, I'm I'm gonna link you this. <laughs> I've sent you Filipino recipes before, dude. I love some adobo chicken.
1: Yeah, did you make that?
3: Yes, and I want to make it on the Traeger, but I've not been to the grocery store in four weeks and one two days. <laughs> Yes. Yeah.
1: So they, they have hot dogs. But for me, I mean, as a Clevelander, let me tell you, let me just
3: tell you what the perfect hot dog is. Okay. I want to hear about a Cleveland wiener. Yeah. the. Perfect I know about hot... a Cleveland steamer, and that's completely different. <laughs> oh, my
1: God. So you need a, first of all, you need kielbasa, okay. right? You need sure sauerkraut. And you need sauerkraut. And you it need smells gassy. stone ground mustard. I ground like stone mustard. ground mustard. I don't like whole ground mustard at all yeah so it's it's got to be that's that's the action right there and you need some pierogies to go with it with a lot of butter and sour cream and onion um for killing me dude yeah i mean it's it's amazing we a matter of fact trent and i we do these feasts right where because our wives are are Filipinas, we we um we do these like American feasts where we'll you know, they come over and we get together and like you know, we'll do a German one and we'll do a or a Western civilization feast is what we
3: when this is over, we're gonna have all four of y'all's over here. Yeah, it's fun, man. We're gonna traeger. You know, Trent keeps saying he's gonna come over when I traeger a steak and discuss his world travels and then he can't come and I just eat phenomenal dinner.
1: Yeah, he's been all over,
3: man. All over I wanna hear about Dubai, Amazon, Mongolia We do
1: these um, we do these feasts though and they're and they're great. Like we do Crab Fest and we do German Fest, Oktoberfest. It sounds like my pull on Friday nights.
2: Really?
3: Yeah, yeah. We're doing Oysters next. We were just talking about that. Okay, yeah, Mike's uh, coming up next Friday to next uh, Friday? Yeah, oh, I'll get perfect. you in touch with yeah. him. All right, yeah. next question. Ready ready? Yeah. What gear item you have not purchased, but is on your wish list of items? Ooh, that's a really good one besides a uh back to the future part two hoverboard yeah
2: yeah 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 wow
1: that's a really good one what gear item what gear item do i want i don't know let's come back to that one let me think about
3: that one. all right what's your most played album
1: um well my most played album yes man that's a good question too well, the, I mean, we, we don't really play albums anymore, right? If you were so to I'll, play an album back in the day, yeah, I still play it. albums.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: I was a big hip hop band when I was a kid. It's probably uh, Black Star with uh, Most Def and Talib Kweli. That band. Right. That's like self-titled right. album. I was probably I probably played that back in the day more than more than. But, um, or what? or Tom or Tom Waits, um, you know, probably. Oh, yeah, uh, I can't hear Tom Waits.
3: Yeah, probably. It's uh, like driving with a flat tire. Frank's,
1: Frank's Wild Years might have been mm-hmm. one of the most played albums, or Mule Variations, probably. I probably played Mule
3: Variations more than any album ever. That's uh, what species have you not caught yet? That's on your bucket list. Man, there's a lot. You know, I'm supposed to be in guess. Key West right now, going after a baby tarpon. That has been on my bucket list for millennia, Very
0: literally, because I used
3: to work in in the Keys during the millennial change. It's been on my bucket list for a millennia. You know, I would I would love to
1: catch a dorado. Probably, that's a strong fish. Uh, yeah, I I would I think I would really like that. I would really enjoy catching a dorado. But but
3: uh, I think a grayling might be a close second. Working on that podcast.
2: Yeah,
1: I think a grayling
3: would be a close second. What's the worst place you've ever fished? The worst place I've ever fished? Horrible (laughs) fishing. As in, uh, let's say, Simon Gosworth said uh, Brittany France. I'm going to say Martha's Vineyard. What was yours?
1: Well, I mean, it wouldn't be a a city because all, you know, I mean, all places I I think have – Good and, good and bad but but uh the worst place i've ever fished is probably i mean a lot of people are going to hate me for this man but it's 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 got to be elk creek over
3: the years in, in pa i mean i have just i caught a st- d- the most beautiful steelhead i have ever hooked was christmas morning on elk and i'm going to give a shout out to joe greasebomb who yeah. has the Ugg bugs and he's tying like crazy right now on Facebook. So find Joe Greasebaum and find him for his Ugg bugs, and he landed it, my fish. Yeah, that creek was very pretty. Very it, strange to me after only really knowing Salmon River. Yeah. But I caught the prettiest steelhead of my career on as a bacon I, fly on Elk Creek. As
1: much as I love great lake steelhead fishing and all the people in it and and um you know and and i don't mind the crowds at all like i love i'm a people person i love getting to know people and i I don't mind you know hanging out and chit-chatting and stuff like that but but that particular stream i believe has deteriorated over the years and has drawn some elements of people that otherwise uh i wouldn't rather see there And so, you know, that to me, that has become one that I've, I've steered away from, Mm -hmm. um, used to be great when I was a kid and I'm sure, I'm sure it still has a ton of fish in it. And it's not about that. It's more about just, you know, people fighting and yelling at each other. And not cool.
3: Yeah. Especially when there's a pandemic. That's why you got to be like a Jew like me and go fish on Christmas day. (laughs) All right. What's the strangest question a customer's ever asked you at a fly shop? The strange Like I said, someone once called and asked if we sold raccoon traps.
1: I have I've gotten a lot of strange questions, but I think the strangest is got to be what No, that's not the strangest. The strangest uh, question I've ever got is, would you be willing to make out with a man for money? I I got that one time. Okay.
3: Yeah. (laughs) What is the best sandwich you've ever eaten on a fly fishing trip that you would recommend to others?
1: Oh, my Lord. Uh, That would definitely be if you're heading to fish the Chagrin River. And
3: what about Bob's is gone. Yeah, northeast dude. Ohio. What about, or Corky and Lenny's is a good one. Corky and Lenny's is, is my family's people. Yeah. That's, that's like a, my jam. That's Why a, don't we have that in Fairfax? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like,
1: You know, a nice pastrami from there. Um,
3: oh, dude, you're killing me now.
1: Come on. Yeah. Uh There's also, um you know, if you're, and then if you're fishing the West side, of Cleveland, like if you're if you're gonna go
3: Toledo Bunt Hens,
1: no, no, I would not... say Melt. Grab yourself a grilled cheese sandwich from Melt in Lakewood, Ohio, on your way to the Rocky River. Mm. Um, that's also a nominal
3: sandwich. It's nine nineteen p.m. I would murder somebody for that sandwich right now.
1: Yeah, I mean they've got all sorts of different grilled cheese sandwiches at oh Melt. God.
3: I can't handle it, dude. We got to change. No, we're changing the subject. Okay. What have you learned about your wife during quarantine? For me, A, she eats string cheese by biting it like a hot dog. Yeah. And B, she does not know how to nest bowls in a drawer. She just Um, puts bowls and strainers and colanders in randomly.
1: I have learned how much of an indoor cat she is. Like – I am absolutely going insane. Absolutely insane. What floor are you on? We're on the eighth floor. Okay. And, like, to me, this is just like, uh, you know, and, and listen, I, I don't mean to sound, I mean, obviously, we're in a global pandemic, and there's a very serious situation, and, you know, and
3: people are dying, and it's it's... It's terrible. It's freaking horrible. But my daughter will not leave my shadow (laughs) from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And I want to go. I'm going to take up running probably tomorrow. I don't want to run. But she cannot run as fast as I used to be able to run. Right. And I want to get away from my child.
2: Yeah.
3: As long as I wanted to have a kid, oh, my goodness. (laughs) An only child. And my wife and daughter are apparently buying a puppy. I don't want to be near them. I have to get away from them. What about Dr. Jones? He gone, man. Oh, no way. Wait, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, he's terrible. been gone since October. Oh, man. I'm yeah, sorry dude, Snouse would have been 15. So oh. they're looking at a, uh, a wired-haired wiener dog after Ed Felker, and my wife wants to name it Colonel Mustard. <laughs> but yeah, puppies apparently are really hard to get right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, so look, I'm grateful for the fact that like, you know, we have the ability to to stay in the house and, and be, you know, quarantined or shelter in place or whatever, whatever it is being called. But yeah, I, that's what I've learned about my wife is she's, she's acclimated to this extremely well. She ended up working from home and, but yeah, she's very much uh, uh, an indoor cat and extremely resilient as it relates to, to this,
3: this kind of thing where I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of a baby about it. Is your laugh a source of renewable energy? Can we tap into that and make money? Yeah.
1: <laughs> People comment on my, on my laugh quite, quite often. I, I don't know. I, I, I've been told it's infectious. I've also been
3: told it's obnoxious. So uh, I'll take the in-between. We'll take the median. We'll take N. Sure, sure. All right. What is something every angler looks over as an essential gear that they should carry? I'm going to say a file for hooks. A file for hooks is a good one. I own a file. Very
1: rarely do I ever take (gasps) it out and use it on the river. I will switch flies, but I do sharpen my hooks from time to time. Essential. Dude, that is like... Like I, I will, I'm known to sharpen hooks prior to a trip.
3: Yeah. I'll tell my clients something. Like we need to, the quote is we, I need to check the integrity of that hook. They yeah. ding something up. I'm like, yo, I'm checking that hook. I got my file hanging out of my backpack. All my other tools are inside the backpack or on my utility belt. PJ Daly is also a, um, a hook very, geek.
1: Yeah. He's a hook. What geek. does PJ stand for? Pajamas? Phil. Phil? Phillip.
3: All yeah, right. I think it's Philip, Phil Daly. Yeah. I think I just need to Phil, call him. Phil to get Daly Junior. Let's Phil get Daly. him on this. Yeah, yeah. We I need to learn about the slipperiness it. of the savage. All right, next question. You ready? Yeah. Any Cleveland urban legends that you're aware of? Oh, there's millions, tons of them. What do you want? Well, I mean, you know about the Buddy Man of Northern Virginia.
1: Vegetable, mineral. What do you you want?
3: (laughs) Uh, A monster. Crypto. So that feeds into my, do you have a favorite cryptozoological organism? Oh, Mothman
1: (laughs) in West Virginia.
3: (laughs) I'll take that dude. Knows about that. Ellis with his polarized glasses. So
1: there's a great book um, called Haunted Ohio. and um, It's about my Russian (laughs) in-laws. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely, man. There's a there's a bunch of urban urban myths, urban legends. Um, You know, one in in Cleveland is the um, the witch's grave, which Uh is I don't want to know about that. But tell me. Well, so there's a really this is a crazy story. So I grew up, you know, fishing the 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 Rocky River. I'm not going to hotspot. Anything, but you know, this is a, good, a really good tip to a good fishing spot. If people want to, you know, read into this and figure it out, but there's a cemetery um, uh, in a certain undisclosed place on a uh, on the Rocky River that's got an urban legend that surrounds it called the Witch's Grave. Apparently, and I, I don't know this that this is true, but I, I, I it probably is that the only person in the entire state to ever be executed for being a witch is in fact buried there and you know kids go there in the middle of the night and you know run around and you know scream and yell and claim that there's a there's like a good man bridge out here yeah 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 and so and so that's that's one the there's also a, yeah. yeah there's also another one uh about a um An ancient uh, or a uh, haunted uh, Indian burial burial ground at uh, Tinker's Creek uh, off the uh, off the canal, the same canal we got here.
3: (laughs) All right. Next question. You ready for this? Yep. What is something everyone looks over as an essential piece of fly fishing gear? This could have been the hook file. Um, What is something that customers come into a shop and they always seem to pass over and you're like, Y'all really can't go out without this
1: split shot.
3: All right. Yeah. Any, have, like, uh, yeah absolutely. Split I need another good hum- Joe Humphrey story. I um, told you this was question number 20. Another
1: good. Well, no, I already, I already gave you one of those. Okay. You somebody else.
3: Yeah. Dan Davalla Or or oh, John Bellotta. Uh-huh.
1: John Bellotta or Dan Davalla. Wow. Wow. Um, I've got some stories. On (laughs) non goat related on those doses. Well, I wasn't there for the goat one. So no, you need to do George Layton on the podcast. He was there for the goat one. So you can get the goat story from, from, from George.
3: If you only had one type of soup to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? One type of soup? Soup. Matzo ball
2: soup.
3: For real, dude.
1: Yeah. I love it.
3: I'm a big fan. Oh, dude. I am so impressed with that yeah all right uh do you have a favorite spice girl
1: yeah for sure man i would do uh sporty spice i think (laughs) okay that's the one i
3: i think i liked when i was a kid i would i had a crush on her if you only had one bird species to tie flies with what would it be it'd be a chicken if you could go back in time to fish with a legend who would it be oh wow if i
1: could go back in time to fish with a legend Geez, that's a really good question. I would want to fish with
3: like a fly fishing legend or just mm-hmm.
1: any any
3: freaking angler. Fly fishing legend. Anybody that was involved, like Isaac Walton. Yeah. Or yeah. let's see, uh George Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. Who would you want to fish with? That's a that's a really good
1: one. I, I would want to fish with Mel Krieger. Womp womp yeah absolutely mom, mom, mom. i I just he's got a an energy about him and a, an attitude that I just um I, I I really like i think I think I would have learned
3: a lot from him. Do you carry a gear vest bag shoulder sling what, what do you carry with you when you fish?
1: uh that really depends, man. and the right. answer to that more than what would than be not, in it? The answer to that more often than not is none of the above All right. what do you carry uh,
3: with you that are essential items?
1: I carry a. I'm gonna tell you the best piece of equipment that I've ever purchased. Orvis carries a a small. It's like a a mini hemostat
3: with a scissor in it. Absolutely, swear by that. That's a Civil War invention, as I've been told.
1: Really, and I I keep that on a on a little lanyard. Yes. Right, and it, it's kind of to poke fun at like people who buy like hundred dollar pair of nippers. I I keep that on a on a lanyard around my neck.
3: As and I that, was told, that was to suture or stitch and suture Civil War patients single-handedly by doctors is the way I was explaining that device. And the, the Orvis scissor with hemostat might be one of my favorite tools of all time. If I leave that at home, I'm screwed.
1: I know. I freak out whenever I like can't find it. Yeah. And, and it has a smasher a, a for
3: split shot. That's right. I use the mini one. Oh, do you have small I, fingers? Are you yeah, like a it, carny? small yeah. hands like cabbage
1: <laughs> I love that movie but I typically like if I wear waiters I don't wear any packs or anything right I I kind of I put my fly boxes like in the waiters in my kangaroo pouch that the the waiting belt creates so I'll just put like one fly box and you know and then I use the pockets of the waiters and the pockets on my shirts or my waiting jacket like I don't you don't I don't really believe that you need always a pack or a sling pack or a vest or whatever. If you, if, if you need one of those things, you are taking too much than you need more often than not. Now, if I wet weighed, however, I typically use one of those things and I, I don't have a vest anymore. I used to use a vest, but I got rid of it. Or have-
3: super tackle pack was the greatest vest ever invented. It was a one hand opening and close sort of like my, so my beer right here, Yeah. Wait, hold on a second. It's a slap bracelet from the Australian Embassy. And it was basically slap bracelet material in a vest pocket. So you could open it with one hand and it would close. Here's the end closing my beer. Ready? Hold on. <laughs> it is my Aussie, Australia, and United States celebrating the first 100 years. It's for prayer <laughs> yeah so super tackle pack by orvis was a one-handed you didn't need to open a zipper or anything you could just put your hand and expand it grab your fly box pull it out and it would close and then when you wanted to put it back in you would just open your hand open the pouch and stick it back in put your hand out and it would close
1: um also you need to carry when you're drive fishing you need to carry like 40 pound or 30 pound test like if you're fishing like 5x leader and your butt section is like you know, I don't know what it is, twenty eight thousandths of an inch. You need to have, uh, to be able to lengthen your leader, you want to carry butt section material, not tippet material. All right. So like to lengthen your leader, add it to the butt section, not the
3: tip. Well, you ready for my last question? Yeah. Hit me. I need a story that you had to have been there to believe.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a spring creek in Western Maryland, and uh, it's kind of a well-known spring creek or it's kind of a well-known spring creek that's, you know, an hour from D.C., an hour and 15 minutes from D.C. It's, you know, it's a small creek, uh, 25, 30 feet across. And Trent Jones and I were there one time, and it was spring, And we were walking along and, uh, you know, fishing and trying to do some dry fly fishing. And we walked uh, across the stream, and there was a particular bend pool, and it had a 30-inch brown trout in it. And it was in maybe freaking two feet of water. And maybe it was 28 inches. Maybe it was 32 inches, but it was the largest
2: Freaking huge,
1: man. It it was the largest inland brown trout. Freaking huge guy. I had ever seen. And it was in 18 to 24 inches of water in a stream that was 25 feet across. And we proceeded to cast at it and change flies, and we didn't catch it. And now that I'm telling you this story, I just thought of one that's even better. <laughs> Tell it. Also with Trent Jones. Oh my so God. We're driving Common we're, Law Brother. We're driving through to Catskills. No light. And we're we're doing we're 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 on some back roads. Okay. In the Catskills coming back from fishing to Delaware. And we're we're of course he's making fun of me for my terrible driving, um, which a lot of people do. Um, including Tom Rosenbauer and Joe Humphrey, who we've talked about. <laughs> I've actually got an autographed first edition of the Orvis guide, uh, the Orvis fly fishing guide, where Tom writes in it, hey, Art, hey, let me grab it. I'll tell you what it says. It's, it's like a very sarcastic, um, sorry, I kind of totally segue, but it says here, here to Art Navigator Supreme, it was great fishing with you. And uh, I hope we do get to do more of it. (laughs) Anyway, so we're driving around these back roads and, you know, winding farm, you know, roads. And in the distance, we see a giant cow. Okay, up on a hill. And this isn't like any normal cow. This cow is like five to seven times the size. The biggest
3: cow of all time
1: the largest cow in the history A of true the court, heifer.
3: If you right. Will.
1: And, and we're both in the middle of singing Crosby, stills Nash and young songs. Uh, often when we go on long drives, we, we, you know, we sing and we both stopped because we knew something was wrong that there. And we didn't say anything. We just looked over at this alien cow. And it took its, and as we're looking in shock, and, and kind of the world stood still at that particular moment in time. We're looking up on the hill, and the cow took its back legs, one of its back legs, right, and it and it scratched its own ear with its back leg, and then put it back down on the ground. Are cows not supposed to be able to do that? I, I don't know dude but this was this was not just any cow this was a giant cow the biggest
3: cow of all time
1: this is the largest cow this is It's
3: like the I butter mean, cow they make at the Ohio State Fair Gobut guys Dude yeah I
1: mean this was this was an alien life force is all what right. this was and it scratched its ear with its hind leg
3: All right so w- when quarantine is over where can listeners find you
1: Well they can find me uh They can find me at Orvis uh, Arlington in Clarendon here in Arlington, Virginia. Um, The second Monday of every month, you can find us at Whitlow's uh, and I'm there representing title Potomac fly org. We are a 501 C three. Yeah, we're a 501 C three. We're a Federation of fly fishers charter club, Federation of fly fishers international. We uh, teach people uh, how to fly cast and tie flies, courtesy of Rob. And we do uh, beer ties. I think we may even have the the oldest. We might be the original beer You're tie. You're the OG. Of- um we 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 may have our members have even may have even started that from what i understand i can't i haven't been around as long as some but and and we just you know protect and conserve and draw attention to and promote uh the potomac river and um the fisheries here in the in the area so you can find me uh find me there all right dude awesome man you rock out a lot a lot of
3: fun Had fun (laughs) quarantine yeah you too buddy
2: Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information
1: or to contact Rob, please go to
0: www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his thrift? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.